WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 333. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from APG UK Studio One in Liss, Hampshire, England. Today's episode, recent aviation news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, Barbie Monsters. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat packs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 333 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your great feedback. And I'm a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in, well, of course, the U.S. And joining me today from, well, she's right next door to me, actually, sitting at the table here in Liss, a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and Commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Dr. Steph. Oh, you should unmute yourself. Yes. Sorry. Watch out for that beer. Watch out for the beer. No, no, it's okay. I got, I got the beer. We're good. Okay. It's me. Yay, I'm here. So good to see you, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana. Lovely to be with you all and in person. Looking forward to a great show. It's always such a great thing to see you in person, Dr. Steph. And we, and I mean that. They don't, but I do. No, I'm just kidding. They mean it too. Also joining us, sitting to my right at this beautiful table in the conservatory in the Anderson Castle, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, and current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hello there, Yanks. Welcome to Blighty. Now that you've undergone the beer baptizing uh, ceremony, then uh, we can now, I guess, start the show. Is that a traditional thing? I didn't realize. Oh, very much so, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was new for me, but I enjoyed it very much. We do it to all our American guests. Thank you. And also joining us, last but certainly not least, sitting to our left, left of Stephanie here at the table, is the barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat, skipper and captain for a major u.s legacy carrier captain dana hey guys great to be over here in the beautiful uh, english countryside uh fantastic hosts and we're having a great time looking forward to another fantastic hopefully dry show yes we are all looking forward to that it's going to rain and, and i'm not talking about humor at all good which is the English humor, which is dry. Yeah, humor. I like dry humor. Yeah, it's good. So I'm going to try to smoothly fade this out. Listen to that, how smooth that is. Thank you. All right. And uh, yeah, so we are all here together again. We don't get to do this too often. 
it was about three quarters of a year ago where we were together at uh, Dana's house yep. for 333, I mean, three, 33, 33 episodes. episodes. Yeah, 33 episodes ago, uh, the 300th celebration at uh, Dana's house, November of 2017. And we're back together again. It's always a lot of fun. I have a feeling we're going to actually have more fun after, I don't know how you could, but uh, after we finish this show and uh, we look forward to um, heading over to Farnborough International Air Show tomorrow. Uh, the public, uh, the first day of the public show is on Saturday, and we're looking forward to seeing a bunch of um, friends and uh, members of the APG community. So, um, yeah, last show, Nick and I were over at Nigel and Valerie Demery's beautiful home up north of here, a, a ways, up in uh, Upper Tad Martin and, let me see, Oxfordshire. Yeah, that's yes. pretty good. Thank you. And uh, we had a great time up there. We went to uh, the Riat show uh, on uh, Sunday and uh, did a bunch of stuff, actually. Uh, we'll, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But uh, we're now here in uh, Lisp, have been since Tuesday. Dana came in on Wednesday. And uh, how was your flight, Dana? Flight was great. Actually, I flew my second trip as a captain which was uh, uniquely scheduled. They gave me five legs on Tuesday. Uh, had an unfortunate experience with uh, the mechanical mechanism on the Mad Dog, and that was the braking system. Had a mechanical issue that morning, so instead of me flying five legs that day and not being able to make it over here on uh, Tuesday night, i.e. arriving on Wednesday morning, uh, ended up only having one leg back to Atlanta, and hopefully, I was hopeful to get on the nonstop from Atlanta However, uh, they left the aircraft with three empty seats and dispatched it, which was kind of aggravating, especially as a non-rev sitting there, and I was number four, so it really wouldn't have mattered anyways. But uh, So I decided to go ahead and try to go to New York and uh, dispatch a mic. A good friend of ours that works in dispatch uh, was helping me out behind the scenes, came up with some good ideas for me, and I had already thought about going up through New York. But however, when he did texted me that, the next flight going was such and such flight number, and I said, hmm, that's interesting. He said, yeah, that's a 2 o'clock departure, and it's going to be leaving at 7.10. That clued me in. As a professional aviator, I probably should be looking at the weather, but I didn't. There's a massive line of thunderstorms coming through the entire northeast, from all the way from uh, upwards of Maine all the way down through the mid-Atlantic, and it just botched up all the traffic. So my other choice was the later flight, which, of course, is oversold. Um, <clears throat> so I was sitting there at the gate to try to go to New York. I had the jump seat, and fortunately I did have the jump seat because nobody else got on the aircraft. And uh, I was contemplating, and I was in the process of calling the captain or texting the captain on the later London flight to see if it would be okay for me to jump seat with him on the nonstop. And I received a dispatcher mic text again. He said, that flight's been delayed until 2 o'clock in the morning. I would recommend you going through New York. So went through New York. Only problem was that the New York Center still had a lot of catch-up to do and infected us well over the Atlantic Ocean, and the hour and 48-minute flight took us close to two hours and 45 minutes. Now, I didn't have that much time to make it the flight in the first place over to London in JFK. Uh, fortunately, uh, Dismatcher Mike had contacted the local folks at the OCC Center in New York, and they, they were talking, conversing back and forth to try to make sure I made the flight. And they helped me out significantly. And they said, the ball guy wearing red shirt. Yeah, that described me perfectly. So <laughs> anyways, I got on the flight. I uh, sat in business class. It was a very, very enjoyable, uh, comfortable seat. For me, 
you know, there's really no such thing as a truly comfortable seat. I cannot put the lay flat seat completely down. Not that I'm complaining, but uh, as a result, I was very uncomfortable as far as sleeping. So I was up the entire night uh, over actually conversing with Mike and dispatch uh, via the new feature that we can text on while we're in airborne. So it was uh, nice. And within five minutes of my arrival here in Heathrow, um, I had already cleared, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Within a few minutes of arriving, he throws the first one off the aircraft, the first through, first one through, and they gave me the expedited uh, clearing. So I cleared through customs, and within five minutes of me clearing through customs, Jeff was there to pick me up. So it was, it was a really, uh, really good trip over, and uh, hoping, hoping for the West, excuse me, hoping for the best returning, except for I kind of talked Jeff into a, a little trick that I had. And, of course, uh, he wants to get home, and he's now stolen my business class seat going home. So I'm, I'm already whining about I'll point that. out I'm at this shut point, up. there are still four business class seats available, and uh, you're number four on the list. Mm. And he forgot to mention the other two people that are responsible for taking his business class seat as well. <laughs> but if I hadn't, if I wasn't, if I didn't have a big heart in protecting you and you wanted to get home, you never would have real or, or even looked at the fact that the Atlanta flights tend to be payload optimized and that the best out was to go through Boston. Uh, how about Detroit? Detroit yeah. looks good. To, business class through Detroit is wide open. Oh, you should do that then. Well, that's what you should do. No, I don't. Because I so. have to go to Boston. <laughs> no, my, I, my, my, I looked at the Detroit flights. My family, yeah, no, there's, <laughs> yes, six, there's six business class seats on that flight. Ah, uh, you can look again. Anyway, uh, when I looked at it, I don't remember seeing that. But anyway. Um, Welcome to the business class fight out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. In the right corner. I'm sure it'll, it'll work out. It'll work out in, in the, the end. Way. It's okay. You know the good news is? What? Is that they have a lemony. A lemony. They have a lemony. They have 11 business, I mean, uh, uh, economy comfort available. So yeah. maybe I'll get lucky and get one of those. Yeah. Maybe you'll get lucky. But I do have to go to Boston because that's where my wife is in the family. And we're going out for a nice dinner, hopefully, if I can Ooh, get there. Sounds nice. All right. Well, great that you're here, Dana. And Steph is our latest contestant in the APG crew game. <laughs> Arrivals game. Yes, yes, and you uh, just arrived uh, earlier today. Earlier today, indeed. How was your flight? Uh, the flight was excellent. I have no complaints about the flight. Um, backing up a little bit before that, I think um, people who have watched previous shows uh, will know that I kind of like to show up to the airport right in time to board and not have to sit around at the airport. And Last I, minute, Louie. Last minute. So yesterday was the exception. So Charlotte Douglas just opened a new portion of their A terminal, A concourse, and I wanted to get there early and go see it and try the new uh, restaurant establishments and drinking establishments. So I was only working half a day. I had packed my backpack the night before. I had to finish up doing some laundry and then put the rest of my clothing together in a suitcase. So I went home after work. I did that. I went for a run. I showered. Plenty of time to get to the airport. Left with a good, like, three hours before the flight. <laughs> and got in the car, needed to put some gas in the car. So drove to the local gas station, got out of the car, went to get my wallet, which was in my backpack, which I had packed previously. No wallet. Oh. I went, uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. So I tore the whole backpack apart looking for it. I tore my whole car apart looking for it. There wasn't anything in the car, so clearly was not there. So I went back to the house thinking I must have taken it out or put it in a pocket of a jacket or did something just not really 
you know, mindful of it. Went back to the house. Not there. <laughs> Tore all that apart. Called up my work and um, got a hold of my practice manager and said, well, you just take a look at my desk and just make sure I didn't leave it on the desk somewhere earlier today <clears throat> after lunch. She looks through the desk, looks in my in the um, in all the drawers at the desk. She goes, no, not here. And then he went, you know what? Hang on. So I called her back one more time. I said, will you just do me a favor? This is just a hunch. Look in the trash in my office because I was in such a rush to get out of the off. Well, not a rush, but I was just, I'd done my clinic. I went and got lunch, brought lunch back. It was working on paperwork before I left the office. I finished my lunch and I just kind of cleared everything off of the desk into the trash because it was all leftovers from lunch. And sure enough, my wallet also made it into the trash at work. Yay, Steph. Yay. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how now we're. So uh, now it's. Yeah, what, how close are we now? So to now it's 510 and my flight is leaving at 705. Still okay. My office is on the wrong side of town from the airport in rush hour traffic, which can actually be bad going back into the city. Also, I have no gas in my car and no wallet and no way to pay for gas. Oh, no. uh -oh. So I'm looking at it. I'm looking at how many miles I have to go to get to the office, the amount of time I'm going to sit in traffic, and if I'm going to be able to do that, get my wallet, get gas, get to the airport. Figure that's doable after some quick, you know, mental math. So I started driving to the office. I'm like a block away from the office and I realize I brought a different set of keys than I normally take because I don't travel with all my keys that usually have my office no keys. No way. You didn't have the office keys? I didn't have the office keys. <laughs> and now it's after work has closed. I'm like, well, maybe someone's still there. Pull into the parking lot. Not a soul. Ghost town. <laughs> oh, no. So now it is six o'clock because it took me 50 minutes to get there in rush hour traffic. My flight's boarding in 15 minutes. No one is at the office. You're not panicking yet, though. No panic. No panic. Keep keep calm. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. So, so I, well, it the, always the works out. So I, I got always there. Always works out. I would absolutely be flipping. I got there, <laughs> yeah, and, and the cleaning lady was there, and I could see her up in the. There's an ophthalmology office above ours. I could see her like going in and out of rooms. Please don't there. tell me you took a rock and you threw a rock. Well, I went. I window. went up there and I knocked on oh. the door up there pretty loudly, and she didn't come. And I don't blame her because why would anyone be trying to <laughs> get her attention? So I was like, okay, I need to think of other options. So I called one of our other assistants who I know usually stays pretty late and I think is pretty close to the, the area. And I, she actually answered the call and she goes, oh, I'm only like five minutes away. I'll just turn right back around and come, come let you into the office to get your, to get your wallet. It's like, great. So she comes back, turn out five minutes. Now it's like 6.05. <laughs> my flight's boarding in 10 minutes. I have no gas in my car. <laughs> Like how, how low was the level in your car by now? Oh, it's on the, on it's the, on e the e red line. Yeah, oh. yeah. And I only get like 18 miles to the gallon in my car. It's not <laughs> exceptionally <laughs> fuel efficient. So this was, this was a fun, uh, and, and the irony of it is I had planned so much time because I was going to be there early. I was going to go, I was going to get some work done. I, was, I had like, you know, personal text messages that I'd been putting off all day and emails and things like that. It's like, I'm going to go sit in the new concourse where they have a Noda uh, bar and have a beer and relax before my flight. None of that happened. None of that happened. What happened was I got to the airport at 6.30, flights at 7.05. Valley parked. Parking. No, I parked no. in the hourly deck, oh. which is fine because it's $20 a day. It's not terrible That's in Charlotte, right. yeah. which is where I usually park anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I parked there and I had a spot right next to the elevator, got in the elevator, which stopped on every floor and was overly full on the way down. But I should have just taken the stairs and just carried my suitcase. Um, got into the, the terminal or got into um, pre-security. There was no line for pre-check. I went straight through, of course, my gates all the way at the end of the B concourse. So I was jogging because I know they're boarding at, at this point already. I'm like, I don't want them to like give away my seat if I right. don't get there in time. <laughs> so got there, got on the flight. No, no problem. Wow. It was a, it was a good, uh, just how, how long before, after you got on, did they slam the door? About seven minutes, maybe <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> 10, min- 10 minutes. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think have, I was in my seat at six fifty, six forty five, six fifty. 50. Do this in your honor. Wow. <laughs> Alive. Wow. Holy camoly. It was and a, I thought I was tight with having 40 minutes on the ground in New York. Yeah, no, I, oh, I had almost no time. I, I think by the time I would have gotten on that aircraft, I would have had to change my draws <laughs> because I would have been crapping myself. Well, and I was, I, you know, you start thinking through all the options. It's like, okay, well, what happens if I do miss this flight? You know, it was at, at the root of it, my fault. I did not double check, verify that my wallet was still in my bag where I had placed it, where I thought I visually placed it. Wait, what? No, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but. Did you ever get gasoline? Oh, yeah. I had to stop on the way okay. to the airport to get okay. gas. You did. <laughs> Which is not really on the way either. The, because the, the real question is, when you finished getting gas, did you remember to put the gas nozzle back before driving Yes, off? I did. I only put I only put like two gallons in the car. I was like, that's enough. <laughs> that <was> fine. <laughs> Just another day in the life of Steph the Traveler. Yeah, yeah. It was. It, but then I was thinking about of the other options. You know, it's like, well, I know there's a later flight. It gets me in here later in the day, which is not super ideal, but I know it has seats available still. Well, I'm sure they would charge me to take that flight, but that's... You wouldn't have been able to uh, go flying today in that's a true. general aviation. That's true. That's true. That w- I would have missed out on that altogether. Tell us about that. Yep. So I arrived this morning and I'd been uh, chatting a little bit with Pilot Pip from Plane Safety Podcast, and he's in the area for Farnborough as well. And... Um, he said, hey, I got the, um, uh, over here in the, his, he has a Piper Warrior, uh, Cherokee Warrior, and he wanted to go up and go flying for a little while, little half hour scenic flight or so. Um, so he said, if you can make it out to this airfield, which is about, ended up being about 40, 45 minutes away from, from Nick's place, um, we'll go up and, you know, just have a little quick sightseeing flight and have and what, a good time. What time did he say that you could be back by? Oh, by one o'clock. <laughs> no, uh-huh. Actually, actually uh-huh. he said you'd be back here at noon. You did actually. I did first. say that. Yeah, oh, okay. and we're going like. Oh no, I meant eight, one o'clock. No way. I okay. Meant one o'clock. But if we I used said to, noon, I uh, meant one o'clock. No, we used to pilot Pip's timekeeping. Yeah, <laughs> you you meant noon time, so that we would just be like, okay, have fun. Yeah. Well, at about one o'clock, I remember walking out into the back garden. No, and, no, noon, noon. Right at, when she said was it she, noon? When Pip oh, said, yeah, because okay. he she specifically said that Pip would have her back here by noontime. Oh, and he, right no, at I, noontime, I at, <laughs> at, at right at noontime, we heard I heard an airplane outside and I said, "I wonder." Pip was right. Yeah. Got her back here at noontime. At noon, Perfect. at about fifteen hundred feet. Yeah, but you didn't bring your parachute, Steph, because that would have been the ultimate. Well, thing. you know, we we actually talked about that, but your garden is a little small for. Landing. Well, hang on a minute. There's there's like. 25 square miles of army oh, ground just over there. I could have just... Like a couple of hundred like a meters lot of trees, away. though. No, no, no. Big flat okay. spots. Okay. Big flat spots. Yeah. Next There's time. even an airfield. 
Well, anyway, we're so glad that you did make it, and we're glad that you were able to fly with Pip. Yeah, that was that was really great. My thanks to uh, Pilot Pip. It was a it was a fun time. We came in Buzznick's house a little bit, and uh, then we actually got to um, do a little flying around Farnborough too. So we got an aerial tour of of a little pre-show for tomorrow. Excellent. Very nice. Now, isn't don't they have a show going on there right now? Yeah, and that was part of the uh, <laughs> just, a, just a little. Country. Wait a minute. Well, no, I think. Well, it tell me about that. Late. How well? How is it? Sure. That you they flew, had some. They had a rival. Fly over it, did you? No. Okay. Well, yeah, pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> just to the just to the east of the airfield, like right over the uh, the numbers. Did you see any like big, large commercial aircraft doing? Yeah, not doing any. No, there were no displays going on. Ah, when we okay. flew past. We had to we had to wait, which was part of the reason why I got back mm-hmm. later as well because we. We really wanted to do that, so it was an extra about 10, 15 minutes of us waiting oh, to yeah, be able Pip's, to... Pip says, well, it's not my show. I'm not screwing up my show, so... No, that's true. Yeah. No problem. I said, they'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were so waiting. We were, your, so, we were so ready to go, like, hours before you got here. That's what I heard. Yeah. No internet problems or anything? No. 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 Oh, well, no we, we only do we that because we had spare time. <laughs> I had to I drink a half the bottle of bourbon, um, uh, whiskey, excuse me. Well, I was waiting for you. No, I'm only kidding. Really, no, I wasn't. We're we're fine. We're we're just. Well, I I appreciate you guys waiting. It was it was well worth going up there and. We we would never have gotten started anyway, so it was actually no factor whatsoever. (laughs) It it worked. It actually worked out perfect. Perfect. And I am I am slightly jealous, but I knew that if I went and I'd be sitting in the back, I'd throw the CG and the aircraft way out of balance. So that's why I didn't go. That is not true. We would have been okay. Yeah. Pip, Pip did all the um, uh, balance calculations. Yes. Oh, he was asking I'd... me for my for my weight. Uh, yes, and, and earlier today, then you would have been stuck in the back seat because I I used to own a Piper Warrior. Yeah, I know how I know how the CG works, so that's right. why I sacrificed myself. All right. Well, we're it's just again so fun to uh, be together again, and we're looking for a lot of fun in the next couple of days. And we went, Captain Nick and I went to Riyadh uh, on Sunday. Tell us yes. about that, Nick. Well, there's a little bit of audio, actually. Oh, because maybe play I should play that. that. would probably save me saying a word. Okay. Here, I'm going to hit the play button now. Okay, hi, everybody. It's uh, Captain Nick here. And uh, this is just a little update uh, on Captain Jeff's uh, progress through his uh, visit to the UK. Uh, we're sitting here at Riyadh. Uh, the Royal International Air Tattoo is absolutely fabulous. The day is wonderful. We've had some great displays, wandered around the statics, met some uh, APGers, uh, which is always good. And uh, we're currently sitting having uh, lunch over a few beers. Um, with us is uh, Captain Nigel Demery, who uh, has been our host during the last few days. And uh, the wonderful Adam Spink, who's uh, specially stopped controlling and told the uh, displayers just to get on with it. I need to go down and chat to the APGers. So they're just having a free-for-all out there. But the uh, star of the visit is, of course, Captain Jeff. He's come all this way out to, uh, to see us here in the UK. It's lovely to have him. Luckily, we've managed to turn on some good Atlanta weather. How's it been, Jeff? It does feel a lot like Atlanta weather. Uh, the sun is shining. In fact, I think I'm probably getting burnt to a crisp. But uh, the humidity is much lower than it would be in Atlanta uh, right now. So uh, it's very comfortable here. Sometimes you feel a nice breeze. And we're having a great time watching all these aerial displays and, and looking at all these static displays here at the Royal International Air Tattoo. And uh, it's uh, billed as the world's largest and best military air show. And I tell you, I can see why. 
It's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, we just they just finished with the F-35 and uh, Spitfire and Mustang, uh, kind of historical fly past, and uh, it was very impressive. And uh, now a little bit of a lull, so we can actually record something and you can actually hear what we're saying. Because we we did an earlier one, a special crew log for our Coffee Fun Cadre, and I'm not really sure that they heard a darn thing we were saying because of all the noise. What uh, was flying at the time? Uh, it was that, that Alpha Jet, the, the French Alpha Jet thing. Yeah, and it was, I, I guess that's a trainer? Well, it reheated. It looks like a light attack aircraft come trainer. Yeah, I was, I was impressed. Uh, very uh, impressive airplane is very noisy airplane too but anyway uh you're having a great time um it's this is kind of my vacation this year and getting to spend it with uh, my good friends here in the uk is just a blast and uh, as we've mentioned several times nigel demery as we uh, he was our guest host on uh episode 332 uh in uh, that episode we haven't i haven't even started editing yet but uh uh, hopefully we'll get that out in a few days. But right now you're hearing this on episode 333, I believe, which we're going to be recording in the future. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's going to be this Friday. So it's now Sunday uh, in like six days, and that'll be at my house. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. And if we have nice weather, we'll probably uh, seat ourselves out in the, well, either in Nick's wonderful new studio or out in the garden. I know better than to call it a yard. I, I, I realize my mistakes now. But anyway, uh, Nige Demery has uh, just been a, an awesome host, opening up his home to myself and Nick, and uh, we've just been a, like a bunch of uh, schoolboys, having fun, drinking, and lots of great stories, uh, of which I've told uh, I cannot retell uh, under perjury uh, or penalty of, 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 well, they threatened me. I just have to say that. They've, they've threatened me uh, with violence. So, yeah, I can't say anything about any of these stories, but they're very interesting. I can just say that. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, staying up late at night, drinking and watching beautiful uh, uh, rock and roll and jazz uh, concerts on the big screen that uh, Nigel has in his, uh, what room would you call that? Your lounge. Lounge, okay. And uh, the guest lounge, okay. It's just a wonderful, it's a beautiful house. And uh, we, just been having a grand time. But anyway, I want to bring in Adam Spink, professional air traffic controller extraordinaire. I mean, he is basically the one of that knows everything that you could possibly know about air traffic control, especially in the UK. So without further ado, Adam. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, yeah, it's great to see you here. Um, and lovely to meet Nigel as well. Um, and it, quite fortuitous that I had a quite a long break from my stint in the tower here at Fairford uh, to come and meet you guys, have a bit of lunch. Well, I think it was, might have been breakfast for you guys. Yep. Um, but yeah, and, and as you say, the weather's great. Um, load of aircraft here uh, for the RAF 100 uh, celebrations. So yeah, should be a good good rest of the day. And uh, I might pop down to Farnborough next weekend and uh, see you all there. Your lovely wife is controlling at Farnborough while uh, the show's on? Yes, that's right. It was uh, She started this morning, I think, on her six-day uh, working cycle, so uh, she's working for the next six days. Uh, but she has the weekend of the public show days off, so she might come along as well, maybe on Saturday. Uh, so, we'll, uh, yeah, that'll be good. 
Anyway, it'd be great to see you. Now, um, Nigel has been looking after us so well. He and I go back a very long way, and Jeff's quite right, although I suspect that once Jeff's got his feet back firmly on the soil in the United States, he might be immune to uh, any uh, court injunctions we bring out against him in the UK. So I guess he might be retelling a few stories there. But Nigel, have you got uh, anything you want to just say to the listeners? Hi APG community, I've been in charge of the welfare and uh, personal needs of uh, Captain Jeff and his uh, co-pilot Captain Slick and I'd just like to, you to know that they're in good hands and they've both got smiles on their faces most of the time and for those of you in the who've com, uh, contributed to the coffee bar fund just like you to know that I'm looking after the kitty and making sure your money is not frivolously spent. It's been a great day and your crew are in good shape at the moment. Brilliant. Right. We're going to say a big goodbye. So thanks, everyone. We'll go back to us uh, in the show and uh, hear from us uh, from Farnborough, hopefully in a while. Absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye. Ah. Uh. It was great to hear from Nigel again, and uh, thank you, Nigel, if you're listening. Wow, thank you very much for your great hospitality and taking care of that kitty. Yeah, I think we should be calling this the Jiff and Slick show as well. Yes. So what happened there is the reason why he keeps using different names for me is I made the mistake of calling him Nev when I was introducing him on That's the true. last show, and he's, he's never going to forget that. No, no ever. Yeah, never I mean, let it go. Nigel's like that. I mean, that'll be you know with you for the rest of uh, his life. Yeah, but most of the names he called me, I liked. Actually. <laughs> so, ha. Joke's on you. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we had a we had a grand time over at Riyadh. Lots of um, lots of fast jets and lots of lots of noise. Sound of freedom. Oh, it was it was brilliant um, and uh, just a wonderful time. Uh, Nigel's a great house. So. Uh, yeah, that's been our story, really. Just having fun, drinking beer, not getting a lot of sleep, uh, and enjoying ourselves enormously. Yes. So, let me get back to our notes here. Um, oh, before we left uh, Nigel's place, he had arranged for us a tour, or tour, if you prefer, of the Hook Norton Brewery. And we did that on Monday, and that I don't think we recorded anything from that. But uh, we, we tried. I had we, a technical problem. Yeah, there was a, some tech difficulties, but um, we we really enjoyed the the tour of the. Uh, it's a very old brewery. I forgot exactly what eighteen forty nine. I think was when it was established. Oh, nineties in the chat room. He'll remind us. But yeah, pretty ancient. Yes, and uh, they do everything. They basically do everything the way they did it from the very beginning. Uh, I was kind of surprised actually because there are a lot of. Uh, technological there are a couple of technological improvements like the way they cool the uh, the hot boiling wort to the um, uh, yeast pitching temperature they used to do it in this very large uh, in fact when we went into that room with that copper lined yeah wasn't that beautiful shallow trough i'm thinking this looks like uh, what you'd see in belgium uh, belgium or for the uh, the naturally uh, fermented um and naturally like unpasteurized or the, 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 like the, the, the sours and the, and the, oh, right. and all the, uh, the Belgian lambics and that kind of thing. They, they actually, uh, allow the wild yeasts to contact the cooled beer. And that's what, instead of injecting or throwing in, um, a, a certain yeast, um, whatever, a culture, 
Uh, they just allow the the natural wild yeasts uh, ferment uh, the the beer, make contact with the beer and ferment it. So that's what I thought that was. And he said, "No, this is what we used to use for cooling the beer." And I'm thinking, "Wow, that would have taken forever to cool the beer to a temperature where you could put the yeast on it because you can't it can't be too warm because otherwise it will kill the yeast." And so it's a very critical thing. And beer, beer, brew. I used to beer. Uh, I used to beer brew. <laughs> uh, I used to brew beer. And uh, the, the the critical thing is you got to get that hot boiling wort to a very uh, lower, a much lower temperature very rapidly. The faster you can do it, the better the beer is going to be. And now they use a, a stainless steel plate cooler yeah, with, a, with a heat exchange radiator thing. This is a fabulous room. You can imagine this vast copper uh, tray about uh, I don't know, a couple of feet deep, mm-hmm. but it must have been thirty or forty feet across big rectangle in this beautiful room which was just full of louvred walls so um there were like big shutters that they could move and let the air flow through and apparently it was a very efficient cooling system i guess especially uh the probably most of the year when it's much much cooler not yeah. here in the summertime yeah they in the in the autumn and winter it would have been very simple i guess mm-hmm. and nigel said 1849 yeah, was the answer to you. Oh, we were. I right. was right. Well, Jeff was right. Eighteen forty nine. Yeah. Good job. Well, I was listening to the tour guide. Yeah, I remember those things. But it was great because uh, they they used the really old stuff. They even had the old steam engine that they uh, used to power the lifts to move the grain around and stuff. They didn't fire that up, but they uh, they still use the same belt system. They they all the same cogs. They even have wooden cogs for heaven's sake to move some of this machinery around. Oh, this was just a fabulous visit. One of the first things they showed us was the, I guess the horse barn. Would you call it uh, the a, sta- uh, a stable? Yeah, a stable uh, where they have uh, draft horses. <laughs> no, they I have an English word. That's uh, quite like it's a stable. Farm. Yes, I'm not a horse guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> the the hanger, but you know the uh, the horse like, hanger. You know the Budweiser, uh, you know the big big giant Budweiser Clydesdale horses. Yeah, the drays. Yeah. yeah, the drays. They have their own drays. I think four. Of them, yeah, uh, in the in the stables. One of only three companies that still actually delivers beer using their trays. Now a lot of companies have just some horses for show, but they actually still put them out with the uh, flatbed, uh, you know, um, horse-drawn carriage. Carriage, not really a carriage. No. Um, a cart, cart, and uh, go out and deliver beer with it. So I think that's brilliant. Yeah, that was really really nice. That was a lot of fun. Um, so thank you, Nigel, for arranging that. And uh, oh, we and they actually let us drink some beer at the very oh, end. Lots. Of I mean, yeah, we, a lot. <laughs> he kept. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he won the prize, though. I think you uh, managed went, to drink. I went all along of them. the entire width of the all the taps to try one some, one of everything. So that was brilliant. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yes, I'll have one of each. Here. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Hey, speaking of beer, really quick, just before I forget to mention it, um, just want to um, give a little shout out to Ghostface Brewing, which is a brewery in the Charlotte area in right. Mooresville, North Carolina. They have brewed a beer. It's called Dr. Steph's Pain Reliever. What? I think Lake wow. Norman Mark has a little to do with that as well. What? That's brilliant. Wow. And we it is on tap now. So I'm hoping that there's some left for me when I get back next week. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. That's Mind you, amazing. do you remember uh, this uh, brewery said that you can pay for a day with their microbrewery uh, side of things, uh, and you can come along with your own recipe, and they'll have a master brewer there to help you, and uh, you can chuck it all in and brew it up in a day. You can even uh, then have it bottled or put in kegs with your own 
labels on it, and you even get a, uh, a you know, the, like the little signs they have on the beer taps. You can even have your own one of those made. And uh, we were just wondering if one year we'll have an APG uh, show meet up there and we'll brew our own beer and have an APG beer. That would be kind of cool. Very nice. And uh, how much of it did they brew? I don't know. Did, is there, are they going to bottle it? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think it's an, just an on tap. And is it at their uh, brewery? It's only? at their brewery in Mooresville, North Carolina. So oh, if you're shoot. in the area. I would love to have some of that. I know. Is it a, Me what too. style do we know? I, it's an IPA. Ah, of course. Naturally. Wow. So my thanks to those guys. That's really cool. I'm very flattered and humbled and um, looking forward to trying it. So I certainly you. would be too. Everybody loves Dr. Steph. Come I on. know. I mean, how could you not? Um, and uh, yeah, as Nick was saying, we're definitely going to have an APG brew brewed. Yeah, that would be such fun. Yes. You have to come over here to get it, though. Yeah. It's Everyone. an excuse to travel. Why yes. wouldn't you want to start go. saving now? Absolutely. Okay. I'm never going, getting on another airplane again. <laughs> non revenue Ever. <laughs> Not leave it kind of a bad taste in your mouth, doesn't it? I just, every time I go to try, I go anywhere, forget about it. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll be thinking about you, Dana, when we're over here. Uh, let's see. So we, as I mentioned, we, the next day, Tuesday, we, uh, uh, doctor, I was going to say Dr. Nick, Dr. Nick, doctor of aviation. Uh, he's on the Simpsons. (laughs) He is. And I, uh, drove from, (laughs) drove from Tad Martin to Liss. Okay. Gather yourselves, please. Done. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it was kind of a nice lazy day. I was still uh, trying to figure out how I was going to or find time to to uh, edit episode 332, which we recorded on Saturday of uh, last week. And Wednesday was the perfect day for that. It was kind of a lazy day. Hmm? Uh, no, we were at Riyadh at, uh, on Sunday. We recorded on Saturday. And Saturday morning for you all. And uh, we on anyway, on Wednesday um, here at the uh, at the house, it was a kind of a quiet day. We, we went for lunch at a really old traditional pub called the Harrow. That's right. Yeah. Harrow. Harrow. How are you? It's so <laughs> old. It doesn't even have uh, an inside toilet. You've got to go over the road to a. It's block. got an outhouse. Yeah, it's got a hole in the. But I think they have the plumbing in the outhouse. Yeah, yeah, they have modern plumbing, but there's no toilet in the building itself. And it's a really old traditional uh, bar, which is um, in the front room of this house. So it's tiny, and there's just a a, a hatch, uh, and the actual uh, beer they have there is all in cask. So that you could, you know, it's just superb. The lady was explaining this hot weather; they'd had a few casks explode. <laughs> she oh, said, really? she, "Man, she had a beer shampoo one day trying <laughs> trying to sort out this problem." It was not a cool day. So no. imagine you have these metal casks with the bung, you know, thing, and uh, the little spigot at the bottom of it, and it's just basically like a shelf right behind, you know, a little window that you walk up to, and behind. The lady is uh, a shelf with all these casks laid out, mostly ales, some uh, cider. And guess what? It is uh, room temperature. And the room temperature that day was like upper 70s, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, they it have was not cold beer. <laughs> it was they really have, They have jackets over there, which they keep damp to, to keep it cool. But yeah. no, nothing's, uh, nothing's chilled. It's really old tradition. So it's piss warm beer. Yes. Yes. 
Well, I don't I'm think we can what? say that over here, mate, because I think the beer police will come in, oh, yeah, my, didn't say crash that. him through my front door, we'll edit that. beat you. Yes, he didn't mean it. Um, and of course, Liz was there at the very same pub. And Nim. I didn't see her. Oh, well, not this visit. Oh, okay. On a previous visit. Liz I was going to say, she didn't even say hi. Yeah, she... <laughs> And this is the Liz, first time learning. Our, learning Liz, our Liz wonderful was... producer. She was in the chat room going, yes. Nick and Nev and I were there last year. Yes. Uh, it's a wonderful place. We had, what do we call it? Uh, raw, uh, rare roast beef plowmans. Yeah, we did. Julie had rare roast beef sandwiches because their beef oh. is just fabulous. Mm. All right, now you're making me hungry. Yes, I'm definitely And I'm already hungry. snacking right now to try that steak. Right. We'll just eat Continue more later. <laughs> Okay, uh, so that was fun on the uh, on the Wednesday, and then uh, on Thursday, which was yesterday, Nick and I and Dana headed over to the Fombro International Air Show, and uh, it's still the uh, the non-public side of the show, and but they still have uh, a lot of commercial static displays as well as. Uh, a lot of um, some demonstrations, which started about half yeah, past two. We've got some audio of that too. Well, do we? Oh, yes. that's awesome. Thank you, Nick. Let's listen to that. Hi there, APG Show. Uh, the Farnborough report. So here we are at Farnborough. Captain Jess made it across. Dana got here too. Woo! And guess who's with us? It's Captain Al. Anyway, Farnborough is looking great. We're here on the trade day on Thursday. Uh, the weather's not bad. It's a little bit warm, but uh, Captain Jeff, who's showing a little bit of redness around his extremities, I'm assuming that's sun and not excitement, is uh, probably grateful for the fact that we've got a little bit of cloud cover. Um, however, I think I'll just hand the mic around uh, the boys here and uh, get an impression of Farnborough 2018. Oh. <laughs> Well, it's probably best to say that the, the less said about Jeff's extremities, the better, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, we've uh, just enjoyed watching the fantastic A350-1000 demo, and then the day has been ruined by Boeing, really. But there you go. What can we say? That's very good. Yeah, I have to agree. Dana, what do you reckon? I can't disagree more. No, actually, it's been an unbelievable show. We did uh, have to cool you down because you got really excited watching the 7-3 Max, didn't you? We were out to yeah, you get know a hotel. Yeah, I, I had to drink an entire beer because when I was watching that, it just overheated me thinking about being stuck in that really tight, really noisy, and very, very uncomfortable flight deck. As everybody probably knows by now, I'm, I'm all about comfort. So... Um, but yeah, watching the bin liner, as Nick likes to call it, uh, it was quite an impressive display, as well as the 350-1000, very nice aircraft to watch in the sky, very, very majestic looking, uh, f the way it was flying around. Um, we just watched a couple other aircraft, we're like, ho-hum. So uh, the uh, the day is really nice, and I'm going to hand the, the uh, uh, microphone over to Captain Jeff, and uh, great talking to everybody. See you soon. Thank you, Captain Dana. It's uh, good that you made it with us, uh, arriving in uh, yesterday morning, and, or yesterday midday, I guess, and glad that you're here and uh, kind of adapted to the local time zone. And honestly, I think all the demonstrations have been, well, not all, but most of them have been, you know, interesting. But we were making the point, frankly, that does it really matter how nose high and how much bank 
one of these airliners does in a demonstration? No, because that never happens in service. And uh, if it did, passengers would probably be, most passengers would be complaining. So uh, it's more about fuel efficiency and cost for seat mile and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, always fun, though, here to watch these big jets do their maneuvering. And uh, the 350-1000 put on a very nice show, as did the seven six, uh, the 787 Dreamliner and uh, all the other ones. Eh. You know, it was kind of fun to watch. It's always fun to watch an airplane. I mean, no matter what kind of it is, it, uh, it's always something that gets our attention when we're walking along and we hear an airplane above us. We always look up to see what it is and what it's doing, so... Anyway, it's great to be here with uh, good friends and fellow aviation enthusiasts, and we're looking forward to recording our episode 333 tomorrow, probably midday afternoon, and then on Saturday we'll be heading over back here to the air show, the public air show, and hope to see a bunch of you out uh, here and meet up with you and talk aviation and just have a good time. Thank you very much. I, I, I was rude. This is Captain Dan again. I was rude for a second because it's the first time I've actually met Captain Al. So it's really a pleasure to meet you in person. Well, that's fine. And I was actually going to ask you, is it really that bad to be stuck into something tight and noisy? You know, this is a family show. So I'm going to hear the pad, I'm going to hear the microphone back to Nick before I say something incriminating. <laughs> All right, everybody. So uh, Farnborough has been a great success. I mean, it, the show is so different in nature to Riyadh because it's very much a trade, an industry trade show. So whereas Riyadh was, uh, the displays were wonderfully tight. They just flowed all afternoon, one straight off the other. Here we kind of sit here and chew the breeze. So it's nice to have someone like Captain Al here. We had Fabian here earlier sitting with us. We're drinking a few beers, and basically we're just yakking aviation and enjoying ourselves. So, uh, excuse me. So, uh, back to, uh, I think, uh, having said all that, back to Jeff in the studio. Well, thank you, Nick. I have it here. Thanks for the uh, the throw, or what do they call that? <laughs> um, I don't think that's actually the term they use in, in radio broadcasting, but yeah, let's just pretend I used the right term. Uh, yeah, it was a great time. Thanks for... Uh, Putting together those um, audios. Uh, easy peasy. No Adios. Um, everything okay there? Sorry. Yeah. A little bit of There, there was hummus, a little huh? bit of um, something stuck to the microphone. Well, <laughs> I've hummus. got beer all over my keyboards. <laughs> the hummus phone. Um, yeah, we had a good time. It was great seeing Al and Fabian. Oh, super. Absolutely. At the, uh, at the air show. Al doesn't change, does he? He's a, no. He's, he's a always very, a very happy man. Yes, yeah, a consummate gentleman. And, uh, yeah, we, we really had a good time. And look, looking forward to seeing him again uh, tomorrow at the uh, mm-hmm. FIA. What about tonight? Yeah, maybe even tonight. You never know. All right. Uh, let's see. And then finally, um, yeah, well, that's pretty much it. Whoop, bang, bang, boom. <laughs> that would okay. be the hummus. <laughs> I think that was the beer. <laughs> <laughs> the beer speaking. We have a picture that we'll include and we'll put in the show notes of the, uh, oh, it doesn't get very big, does it? That's what she said. Um, but of the, uh, out the window of the uh, Piper 
warrior uh, during doing. Mine the, got bigger than that. I even could even see Jilly in the in the garden. Yeah, I can see someone in the garden. Was it yeah, Jilly? Yeah. It was in the white shirt. Yeah, it was Jilly. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm 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 trying to enlarge the picture. <laughs> you're trying uh, to make it bigger, and it's not getting bigger because you're not rubbing it the right way. I guess not. I'm not holding my mouth the right way. Anyway. Uh, we'll we'll put a, a full size resolution photo in the show notes so you can see the uh, overhead view of Nick's beautiful house here in Lis, and uh, that is it I think for the oh wait no 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 you know folks that we always try to maintain at least a fifty percent accuracy rating and we know that you mm, excuse me we know that uh, you out there our dear listeners always are listening keenly to make sure that we are. Uh, saying the right thing and actually listening to others sending us feedback uh, to you know make sure that we are at least 50 percent accuracy and looks like chris quaintance uh, had to uh, send us something to keep us on track he says hey captain jeff and apg crew just wanted to drop a quick note in reference to episode 331 i was listening to nick from wichita who was discussing operations at uncontrolled airports and the bonanza crash in 2016 He mentioned in his recording that after takeoff, you're considered to be on the upwind leg of the traffic pattern. This is a common misconception. That is actually the departure leg, as per AC90-66B-AIM4-3-3 and Chapter 7 of the Airplane Flying Handbook and Chapter 14 of the Pilot Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge. I was going to say oh, the my. same thing. I mean, right, rolls Come right on. off the... Uh, yeah, everybody knows that. Yeah, but exactly right. Anyway, it can be confusing while at an uncontrolled field and someone states that they're on the upwind leg when they're actually on the departure leg. As I mentioned, this is a very common mistake made by many pilots, and I often hear fellow CFIs teach it incorrectly. Just want you to maintain that 50% accuracy. Thank you. Keep up the great work and look forward to the next episode. Again, that was Chris Quaintance, uh, who, uh, you know, wanted to make sure that we uh, set the record straight. Oh, yeah, that's good, because I actually would have called it the upwind um, leg as well. So, and I good to know. don't know enough to go about back much and, uh, research, uh, to know. So <laughs> we don't use these terms. Pilot you know. Handbook of Aeronautical. Well, but at, at uncontrolled fields, it's used quite frequently, and, and especially... Folks who are student pilots or things are going, you know, doing pattern work. Frequently, they'll announce every single leg that they're on of the mm-hmm. pattern. So they'll say upwind, you know, crosswind, downwind, base, final. I've not heard anyone really use departure. Departure leg. leg. What mm-hmm. about you, Dana? No, no. What Seth? Upwind, leg, crosswind, downwind. Never huh. heard departure leg. Little controversy here. I know. I'm going to have to look it up. Controversy. I, I'm, I'm taking down the uh, AC. So it's a. AC 90, uh, that must be That's the uh, advisory. ATC uh, probably reg, wouldn't, wouldn't it be? Uh, or is it an advisory circular? Oh, it could be, yeah. So let me get this right. This is a, a 50-50 yes or no. Did we get it right or not? So it doesn't matter which way we get it. We'll be still at 50%. Correct. Good. Yeah, but you know, actually, it, we didn't say it. Somebody else did. So oh, yeah. We, we take no responsibility. Be held yeah, responsible for well, that. But, I mean, in, but we, in reality. Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge. I have it right here. Chapter 14. By well, by announcing that you're taking off, that you're taking the runway, I guess you could technically say that you departure leg. Yeah. Yeah. What if you're doing like a, a lower, like an option, low approach, touch and go, then is it still the departure leg or is it the upwind leg? I don't know. I don't even know why I'm asking. 
because it's just confusing. <laughs> because someone it, has asked us the question. It's the upwind yeah. lake. Okay. Unless it's changed since I was... It may very well Chris, have you may have to send us more feedback. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like he quoted chapter and verse, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll we're going to find out. We'll definitely let you know what we find out. Where are the damn fact checkers when you need them? I know. Mm-hmm. We mentioned that on the last show. We yeah. haven't had the fact checkers on there for quite some time, and... Uh, we're a little concerned about that. Anywho, well, while Steph and uh, Dana kind no, of look the, into it. The reference he's provided does, in fact, list it as the departure leg. Ooh, well In the done. pilot handbook of aeronautical knowledge. So slap all those CFI's mm-hmm. hands. Wow. Well, you know, sometimes things kind of take on a known, its own level of authority because everybody refers to it as the same thing so everybody assumes that that's correct but maybe that this is one of those things mm-hmm. where everybody calls it that and n- nobody really knew except for chris that it is not called the upwind leg it's called leg it's called the uh, departure leg so. well forever forever when i was teaching it was always the upwind leg so yeah that had to well, obviously is a change between the time i was teaching and probably even went through cfi renewal that uh-huh. they've changed that verbiage i don't know how long huh. it's been that way but well, controversy. We learned something. Yes. At least. <clears throat> well, that's the best thing about being a pilot is that you don't ever stop learning until you're no longer a pilot or dead. So, no, the best thing about being a pilot is you get to fly up in the air in an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> if more, you're me, if you're me, <laughs> more controversy. No. Controversy. I don't get to fly very much. Oh, that's true. Well, Let's move on to the almost the best part of the show. <laughs> Let's move on to the, you know, we didn't do this. I said I was going to uh, put the coffee fund and acknowledge our coffee fund cadre uh, contributors. Um, I was going to put that in, in did post. Did you speak with a forked tongue? I did. Yeah, I didn't do it because I thought, you know what? Gosh darn it, I'll just do it on the next show, 333. So that's what we're going to do right now. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Yes, the Java Jive. That's what we sing. Or I sing. And Jeff Smith sings uh, when we're doing. And Nick conducts, apparently. And Nick was conducting. You didn't see that. You didn't, you know, but you probably felt it. Like somebody must be conducting this because Jeff is like right on it. And he was using obscene gestures as well. You know what I'm thinking, though? The fact that he wasn't hearing what I'm hearing and we don't have the speaker on and he was still conducting in time. That's talent. That is talent. Yeah. Well, I better get on because we're going to run out of uh, Java Jive here. Uh, since the last episode, we have some Coffee Fun Classic contributors. Bill Metzger, Mazuz Karim, Richard Adams. Saw Richard at um, Riyadh. And, or maybe that was Farnborough. Anyway, I saw Richard recently. Uh, Frank Hammond, Hammond, Chris Randall. And uh, they used the PayPal method, the Coffee Fun... Yeah, the, yeah, it's Coffee Fun Classic Method. Thank you. <laughs> I think I've had too much to drink already. Anyway, another way to do it is to become a patron via patreon.com. We have some new producers, Mert Gumas and EF. 
And if you want to join the coffee fund, join these fine folks. Head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You can learn about how you can become financial supporters of the show as well. Hey, keep it down in there, will you? All right. Let's get on with the best. Well, it's, not, it's still not the best part of the show. It's the news. Stand by for news. Oops, we don't want that. (laughs) Okay. Nobody knows any different. Nope. Let's start with the first item in our news folder. French Air Force get their colors wrong in Bastille Day mix-up. Gallic Pride took an embarrassing knock ahead of France's World Cup final match when the annual Bastille Day military parade went awry in the air and on the ground, and in full view of President Emmanuel Macron. The July 14th parade is France's chance to display its military muscle as soldiers troop down the Champs-Élysées. Champs-Élysées. Ah, dang it. Very nice. Yeah, I tried. Under the gaze, the gaze of the uh, president <laughs> and French fighter uh, and uh, reconnaissance jets thunder past overhead. But reconnaissance oh, <laughs> jets? Yes. Reconnaissance. What, they taking photographs? Spy planes? Uh, I didn't what think they this? were reconnaissance jets. Uh, oops, somebody slipped up there. Maybe they Possibly. are taking photos. <laughs> no, sir, you're not supposed to tell the, the crowd this. Okay, but only minutes into the parade, down the world's most beautiful avenue, Avenir, a glaring glitch, the glitch, occurred as two gendarmes involved in a complex motorbike ballet with horsemen from the Republic Guard crashed into each other within yards of Mr. Macron. The president kept a straight face, even clapping, as the two red-faced gendarmes struggled to lift their heavy bikes. Please sit. Okay. Uh, Visibly irked. Erked. Military band conductor. (laughs) Nope. Up the tempo and the parade continued. But. But. Presidential eyebrows were raised once more during the fly past of Alpha Jets from the Patrouille de France, the Gaelic Evan, or is it Gaelic or Gaelic? Gaelic. 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 Uh, equivalent of Britain's Red Arrows. In one of the most keenly awaited moments of the display, three sets of three jets were due to trail the colors that make up the French tricolor flag, red, white, and blue. However, due to a mix-up, In charging the canisters, one of the jets had been fitted with the wrong color, red instead of blue, meaning the jets flew over with a lopsided flag of white, red, blue, and then red again. The Bastille Day Parade came as French pride, and its football team has reached stratospheric levels as they are due to face Croatia in the final in Russia on Sunday afternoon. By the way, they did face Croatia on that Sunday afternoon. And they won. Mm-hmm. They're World Cup champions. And 
Anyway, yeah, that uh, was uh, probably somebody's going to get in a wee bit of uh, we, not yes, but a little bit of trouble for uh, for that mess up. Wouldn't you? Yeah, it it didn't look very good. (laughs) Yeah. No. I mean, the the flying was good. Just Mm -hmm. the colors were definitely wrong. I I noticed that the red arrows uh, were able to change the colors of their smoke during the display. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering if it might have been a, a pilot error. Pilot error. That could have been. No. No. Pilots don't make errors. <laughs> no. Come on now. What's wrong with you, Nick? Could not have been a pilot uh, error. Silly of me. Oh, no, no. All right. Moving on to item B. Jacob uh, sent us some feedback uh, regarding an article and uh, a news story regarding a United States tourist tries to bring a World War II grenade on board her plane. He says, uh, hi, guys. Hope you're doing fine. And Fambra was great fun, which I'm sure it was. Yes, it, it is, was, and will be. A couple of days ago, the story took place in Austria's Vienna International Airport. The woman even gave the bomb a good clean in her hotel room to not make her suitcase dirty. And so the article goes on. It is from Reuters. Vienna International Airport was reportedly shut down after a 60-year-old woman revealed at Customs Control a hand bomb she discovered while hiking in the woods. Vienna International Airport is on high alert after a 60-year-old... Oh, I just said that. Um, But it's stated again, uh, just changed a few words here. I don't know why these people do this. Uh, After her Austrian holiday pulled a... World War II grenade out of her bag at border control. She had asked the customs officers if she could take the souvenir, which she came across while hiking with her. An alarm was subsequently set off, blocking the entire baggage hall and also the uh, adjoining terminal, which, while specialists removed the grenade, once used by Nazi Wehrmacht soldiers against tanks off the premises. Uh, according to the elderly tourist, she discovered the grenade in a forest several days before her departure, put it in her backpack, and took it to her hotel, where she washed it in her sink. So I did not get my suitcase dirty, she revealed to stunned customs officers, as quoted by the newspaper. So I would imagine this is still a an active, potentially explosive device. Yeah, and probably pretty unstable after that length of time. It's not the sharpest tack in the box. No. No. You know, you, you just have to think that she had no clue what it was that she was dealing with. No. no. At all. No, completely clueless. Or, or somehow imagined it would make itself inert after all this Oh, yeah. Time. I mean, it's been sitting in, the, you know, on the ground. It hasn't blown yeah. up yeah. since hasn't blown the World up War II. Yeah, exactly. It's fine. Right. It's definitely not. Of course, it hasn't not been right. handled by somebody and washed in a sink either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that in itself probably killed it. You know, the, the water. Could be. I don't know. I don't know how those things work. Uh, kills computers, so... Well, beer can kills computers. Yeah, that too. Water she saves washed them. it with beer. Yeah. That's true. That is our public service announcement. If you find a bomb, make sure you wash it with beer. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and just don't mention it when you go through security at Austria's Vienna International Airport. Uh, Rolf writes in. He says, Dear APG, I always enjoy listening to your show. Your soothing voices and attitudes are always good. Here's a nice little news flash in Dutch, but just watch the clip. So he gave us a, a link to an article in a Dutch news source, 
and we're going to play a little bit. Oh, I guess we should set it up. We talked about on the last episode the crash of a Convair 340 Martinair. Um, I guess it was heading to a museum in the Netherlands. And while they were doing some kind of a test flight in South Africa with, um, I think, just four people on board, uh, pilot, co-pilot, engineer, and one other um, person on the airplane. And then I think there were some people on the ground that were injured as well. Uh, They uh, had some trouble with the left engine. And we were kind of speculating what had happened here. And this gives us a little bit more uh, information about what happened or at least uh, what they experienced in the uh, in the back of the airplane. Somebody was uh, using their probably their, their telephone. Uh, they're doing a video here, and we can we can hear a little bit of the incident if I can find it. Here we go. It's getting worse, huh? You better hit it for the runway. Huh? You better hit it for the runway quicker than it's trying to. This is getting bad. This is getting very bad. more to the uh, video kind of the ap- aftermath of the crash i'm not sure how many people total were on board it sounds it looks like there were more than just the four um it sounded like kind of a, a crowd of people on on board in the back and looking out the window you'll have to look at the video you can see what they were seeing and you can see that they're getting closer and closer to the ground and i think that at some point they realize oh not only is this engine experiencing some kind of troubles but uh oh we're getting close to the ground everybody strap in and basically brace and i'm just wondering you know just listening to the sounds of the engines inside the airplane it didn't really even sound like the engine noise was that high like the what i would expect to hear maybe the operating engine would would have been a louder sound like it just sounded like they were at normal power to me I don't know. You know, I've not flown in one of these airplanes. So I well, the insulation on that type of old aircraft wouldn't be uh, significant enough to, to mute that. You know, even the more modern turboprops like what I flew, uh, you can hear the engines uh, quite distinctly. So, yeah, I, I, I saw the same thing you saw, Jeff, on the video. Um, and it looks like that left engine was indeed feathered. Uh, we mentioned last time, I think, that we were considering whether it's a counter-rotating prop. I also started thinking about the fact that it is 1940-50 technology, so more than likely the answer to that question would be no. I uh, tried to do some research on that, but didn't find that answer. So um, that's a very good observation. I, I it, it was quite apparent that the there was not a whole lot of background noise, which is... Uh, which would be if that engine, that right engine was at full operating power, 
you probably wouldn't be able to hear them talk at all. I wouldn't think so. But again, you know, I can't really say with certainty because I've never actually been on one of those airplanes. So I don't know exactly what it would sound like, but it, it, um, I don't, if the, if the airplane engine was the left engine was feathered, uh, even it was, if it was completely shut down, it looks like it was still partially running, maybe producing a little bit threat. Well, I guess it was feathered. It wouldn't be, but, uh, I, I'm sure that the airplane wasn't that heavy, didn't have a big fuel load. I, I just, it's hard for me to understand how the airplane crashed. I don't know. Well, you know, and, and the big thing with that is, is that uh, if you watch a video and how fast, uh, how much little time the video shows the aircraft coming from a, a decent altitude down to the ground, it's not very much time. It almost seems like it was, it, it was the glide ratio mm-hmm. of the airplane that they were at their best glide. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it was pretty rapid. Yeah. It, it came out of the sky. So it, it, I wouldn't be surprised if that right engine was either having problems or. Yeah, maybe both engines were having Yeah, maybe, 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 you know, and, and that would lead me to think of, of one common cause would be fuel contamination. Could be. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I'm just looking at the flames that were coming out the back of the engines. Yeah. yeah. Or, or at least some kind of an issue that would have affected both engines although and clearly the left engine was the one that was experiencing the major problem but perhaps the right engine wasn't producing normal or full power yeah. so. so more more to be seen on this one i think yep absolutely but uh thanks to uh was it rolf uh yes rolf rolf for uh sending in that um link which we'll include in the show notes um Moving on, um, the next item. I guess there was a collision in Florida that just occurred recently. I don't remember hearing about this, so thanks, Liz, for putting it in the news. And apparently it was a uh, Piper PA-34, which I believe is a Seneca. Is that right, Seneca is correct. And a Cessna 172 crashed in a remote region accessible only by airboat or helicopter. Reported to 911 after uh, around 1 p.m., a large debris field was found near mile marker 23 on the Tamiami Trail, southwest 8th Street at 227th Avenue, about nine miles west of Miami Executive Airport. Preliminary information was that those who died, I guess uh, everyone uh, died on board both airplanes, is that right? Uh, Confirmed dead. Uh, Jorge Sanchez, 22, Ralph Knight, 72, and Nisha Sejwal, 19. So a couple of young people and an older person uh, passed away in this midair collisions, a collision. Um, the uh, story goes on to say, which leads us to believe that you had a pilot and a trainer or a trainer and a student and in another plane, a trainer and a student. Oh, I guess there are more than three people. Um Authorities have not said who on the planes and the 35, let's see, I'm just kind of skimming this article here. Um, apparently one of the airplanes was part of a flight school. I said it had uh, taught 7,000 students from around the world and they did not return messages to the uh, newspaper. And uh, anyway, they go into a little bit of detail about some of the people that were involved in the accident. Uh, anything else uh, that you guys can add to the story other than there was a midair collision? Well, it it's, uh, and this is just me talking as a flight instructor, um, 
it's everybody when you're flying VFR, and that's uh, I don't see any indication of anything else here um, that you are to do proper uh, turns and scan the area before doing any maneuvers. So I don't know if it was um, right around a VOR of any sorts. I don't think it was being out over the over the Everglades. It's probably more likely a, a training maneuver area. And uh, you know, it's always it's stated in, in the uh, uh, in the aim that you know the clearance of of maintaining uh, safety clearance around other aircraft while you're maneuvering is the responsibility of always is is responsibility of the pilots. So um, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot more detail than that. You know, just it's a learning lesson. Always as as pilots, keep your eyes outside the flight deck cockpit. And, uh, you know, the instructors are uh, particularly responsible because when you have new students, uh, they're just focused on one thing, and that's trying to fly the airplane. So uh, the extra diligence of, of, the, um, of the instructors is oh so key. Another thing is, is another way to hopefully prevent. Now, of course, Florida is a very high, um, high uh, training area. Uh, there's a lot of traffic, general aviation traffic in Florida. So it's not surprising, unfortunately, that something like this happens in Florida because it's just such a high density. But the, the, the thing that you can always do to try to help you, like, for example, the PA-34, um, it is a quite common uh, uh, training aircraft that's used for multi-engine training. Uh, that and the the um, um, Seminole, those are two very common aircraft that are used for uh, um, multi-engine training. So I don't know if the multi-engine was just flying cross-country or doing some actual maneuvering, but uh, you know it's always wise to contact air traffic control for flight following, even if you're VFR. That way they can at least give you traffic advisories of anybody that's possibly in the area, because even though, uh, you know, it's visual rules, um, we all have our transponders, and especially in this area, you're going to require, and you're, you're within 30 miles of the uh, Class Bravo, so you're required to have your transponder and transponder on. So that would, you know, be another helpful uh, tool that they could have used to prevent this type of scenario. I guess the big sky theory doesn't always work. No. No, it does not, unfortunately. And it, Lane says he thought that both of those airplanes were from the same flight school. And it turns out, after I'm looking at the article a little bit more closely, everyone, uh, two people aboard each airplane uh, died. Yeah, so all four passed away, which is sad. But Dana made the good point there that it's always a responsibility, regardless of whether you're uh, on an IFR flight plan or a VFR flight plan that the pilots are always supposed to be clearing for other traffic. And it's a good example too, just of where even when you think you're doing a good job of it, it can still be very difficult to see other traffic sometimes. So even if you're pretty diligent and scanning and looking, it, I mean, it does happen where it's, it's hard to spot someone else out there, whether that's due to the lighting conditions or due to just the direction that you're, that the traffic is approaching. Um, it could be harder at other time at sometimes than other times. Yeah, and and the big thing is is that a lot of people become complacent, and that's the biggest threat to our aviation uh, community. It's complacency. So, you know, even as you know, flight instructors get up there, they you know do the same thing over and over with, with multiple students during the day, and instead of doing a proper clearing turn, which is you know doing a a full uh, 90 degree turn in each direction, then doing the maneuver to make sure that you've cleared the area. They may just dip the wing and, uh, you know, 
listen, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. Dip the wing in each direction, take a good look around and then go right into the maneuver. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's advantages to having a training area, a designated training area. You're keeping general aviation away from more high density areas. Um, but also that, <laughs> that ends up being the high density area where everybody's in the same airspace doing their training. So that's all I have to say. And this is also a good, um, um, advertisement or a good, something that's happening requiring the ADSB out and, um, ADSB oh, good justification for that. Yeah. I yeah, mean, uh, as, yeah, as, it's, you know, it's just extra situational awareness. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If you have whatever you know, the requirement by 2020, if both of these airplanes had had that, there would probably some, be some kind of an oral alert, right? Yeah, you, you, get a, you can get an auditory alert um, if you have it set up that way, definitely. Yeah, I mean, isn't it fair to say that ADSB is a, a, um, um, a poor man's TCAS? Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah, so. Um, you know, and the way I can display it on my on my iPad here, if I have the ADSB receiver, it it does show up all the uh, aircraft in the area with ADSB out, yeah, but but not every aircraft has it right now. So. And, and and not only that, that that is a point of contention with me is that we have such great technology now in the flight in in cockpits, i.e., general aviation. You have your iPad, you have you know flight flight aware, and all these other great programs that take your attention away from keeping your eyes outside of the flight deck. Yeah, you can't use it as a project or a replacement. No, you shouldn't be using it as your your primary display or anything like that. But if it, you know, if your eyes are outside and you hear that alert, it's worthwhile taking a quick glance to see. Couldn't agree with you more. What is it showing? And in this case, that could have saved four lives. Absolutely. Possibly, you know. Absolutely. Hard to say. Oh, you know, we talked about this on the last episode, that uh, airplane that crashed in Alaska. And uh, it was on, uh, what was the name of the island? Prince something Island. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, the um, everybody survived, including the pilot. And uh, this is an update. A report released Wednesday by the National Transportation Safety Board tells of the harrowing moments before a sightseeing plane crashed in Alaska last week. Passengers apparently saw the looming danger before the pilot. All eleven people on board this plane that crashed into the side of a mountain were rescued in a daring operation. Investigators now say moments before the July 10th crash, one passenger texted another to ask the pilot to land. A passenger sitting next to the pilot told the NTSB he was uncomfortable with the worsening weather conditions shortly before he saw what the pilot missed, a large mountain uh, loom directly in front of the airplane. As visibility went to zero, 72-year-old pilot Mike Hudgens told NTSB investigators he tried to turn around, but he became disoriented thinking he saw a body of water, according to the NTSB's preliminary report. The plane was equipped with floats and thus could have landed. Instead, the plane crashed. The president of Taquan Air, the company that operated the flight-seeing tour, issued a statement in response to the NTSB report, saying the company continues to cooperate with the investigation. And uh, let's see, what else did he say? Taquan or Takan Air, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Uh, received the NTSB preliminary report earlier today. We continue to cooperate with the investigation to better understand how the incident occurred and to ensure an accident like this doesn't happen again. Obviously the appropriate thing to say for the CEO of the company. Our commitment to safety is unparalleled and reflected in our dedication to continual pilot training, 
protocols that exceed FAA standards and a track record of employing experienced, well-trained pilots. We remain grateful for the lack of fatalities and want to reiterate our gratitude to the first responders and professionals with the Coast Guard, State Troopers, uh, Ketchikan Volunteer Rescue Squad, Guardian Flight, Temsco Helicopters, among dozens of others in the community. And he added that the preliminary report reiterates the need for the FAA to implement ways to provide effective terrain awareness and warning system protections while mitigating nuisance alerts for planes operating under visual flight rules. This issue is important to us, and we are dedicated to working with the FAA and other operators to address it. And uh, uh, one of the passengers said, I was on the left side of the aircraft, and back where I could, I couldn't see anything on out my side. Rescue swimmer Tony Pugila said, it was just clouds, so yeah, the visibility was horrible. Um, reports say that the pilot tried to avoid the mountain, but reacted too late. And uh, he's been removed from flight status, the pilot. Um, he is not eligible to fly for the company at this time. This follows our company protocols, and there's no existing timeline for reinstating his status. <laughs> That's not a good statement. <laughs> no. In other words, <laughs> I don't think he's going to be returning. Bye. And if I were him, I'd probably think, you know, it's time to retire. Yeah. What is he, 72 years old? Yeah. Ah, so, anyway, anything to add to that uh, story? Well, obviously, I mean, if he was trying to uh, avoid the mountain, it looks like that his avoidance maneuver actually probably saved every one of their lives because he probably pulled up and probably got the aircraft very close to stall speed. And, and banked and, it probably, and too. And banked it. Or, it down onto you know, the just, angle of the he, mountain. Yeah, angle of the mountain, he pancaked it in. Yeah. It, it, so it, thank God for that. Um, I don't know why the... Uh, I don't know who flies up in Alaska. You know, I, I, I'm not familiar with flying in Alaska. Let me rephrase that. I don't know why they're not flying on using um, some type of GPS navigation, moving map navigation. I mean, that's that, that, in that, in that sense. And we're going back to talking about the. And that technology exists to have terrain, you know, warnings and. Absolutely. Like I mean, even I'm, in general aviation aircraft. They've got a great history of bush flying, though, doing everything on yeah. minimum instruments. Uh, so I don't I don't think a, a, a terrain collision avoidance system would be necessary and necessary because if you think about exactly to your point uh, that there are so few crashes up there based on that that all right once in once in how many years really I mean that's that's that, to me that's a waste of money especially when we have a piece of equipment like what Dr. Seth has here with her her iPad and you can use that as a backup type of piece of equipment up there. So that's all I have to say on that. Because I've never had anything to say. Well, I think I, the one uh, sightseeing flight that I took in Alaska, they did have, um, I think it was a combination, I forget which one it was actually in the, the aircraft. It was one of the Garmin's or one of the other ones, but I think it did actually have uh, terrain as a feature option. to Tom Tom. No, <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of roads. Oops. Yeah, we weren't we weren't overflying any roads. No. It was glaciers and mountains and things like that. Well, in, in I mean, it was a nice VFR day, so it wasn't necessary. But um, yeah. I mean, the, the equipment exists. I mean, it exists, the, and the, and if you're doing you know commercial revenue operations, it seems like a small investment. Yeah, I mean, it was a four or five thousand dollars put in a GPS or Garmin system. Yeah, and that has I mean, a, information. Uh, a UPS stack and or a GAM system that has the moving map. It's not, oh, whatever, I'm not going to say anything. Hmm. 
Hmm. Irritating. That's what it is. Irresponsible. Okay. Yeah. And finally, some some bad news today uh, regarding the youngest Spitfire pilot to fly in the Battle of Britain during World War II. Yeah, it's this Jeffrey Wellham. He's well known to those of us in the UK and to many uh, uh, around the world. He uh, was a real character. He was, uh, as Jeff said, the youngest uh, pilot to fly in the Battle of Britain. He survived. He, he, uh, his exploits uh, have peppered many a movie uh, plotline. And he wrote the most fabulous book, and I would recommend it to all of you, uh, First Light. Uh, and he's a remarkable story, storyteller. And we're all terribly sad to hear that he passed away uh, earlier today. And uh, there's a little bit of uh, um, video here we can get the audio from, from, from the BBC of an interview he did uh, a little uh, earlier uh, in his life. The moment the telephone rang, you were absolutely hit up. That was a difficult time. Once you were strapped in your aeroplane and airborne, then it was up to you. I can remember the controller coming on and saying, Vector 140, 150 plus, coming in over Dungeness, 150 plus. And my goodness, it looked it too. And we went into it head on. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a hind call that day. But that's, I can see it now, like a lot of gnats on a summer evening. They were doing 300 miles an hour. We were. That's 600 miles an hour closing. Everything happened very quickly. The whole secret of survival was never to stay still, straight and level, for more than 20 seconds. I was shot up three times, and one, one of the blokes shot me up quite badly, but I didn't even see him. You dismissed it. You dismissed it. You did. You just accepted it. It was a dangerous game. It was a dangerous war. If you lost a particularly close friend, yes, there was a little bit of... But let's go out to the local pub and white heart up it. But you accepted it, you had to. You didn't have any pride at all. I wouldn't have said pride, it was just, we were after all young fighter pilots doing a job, which was defending our country against the king's enemies. Yeah, what a marvelous man. Uh, we. Uh, we all think of him, and very sad that uh, he's gone. Yes. He flew west today. The link for that, yes, thank you, will be in the show notes if you want to hear the entire uh, interview with Jeffrey Wellham. May your soul rest in peace. And now for the best part of the show your feedback captain incoming message okay let's start with the uh, first item in the feedback bag and it's going to be number two texas charlie howdy guys and gal as always love the show and all you do for the apg community although i love airlines and air 
line travel. Much has changed in my 59 years. Mike Rose attached piece attempts uh, or attests to the darker side of the beautiful art that is flight. And then he sends us a, a Facebook link to a post by uh, Mike Rowe. Um, what was it? Dirty Jobs or something like that? Dirty he, Jobs. Dirty, the, dirty uh, job. Oh, he's a funny guy, his, isn't he? Yeah. He does a couple other things now. And he actually he has a podcast now called The Way I Heard It, um, which is actually really interesting. It's yeah. little five-minute um, stories, and it starts off where you don't know who he's talking about or what he's talking about. And it's kind of a little or a lesser-known backstory about someone who usually is fairly famous. Oh, nice. I haven't, I'll have to listen to that. And, and he does a lot of voiceovers on a lot of shows as well. A lot of well. shows and commercials. Oh, I love the one where he's a washing machine. Have you seen that? I don't think so. He, he's a fridge or a white oh, Perhaps it's just in the UK, but it's hilarious. He stands there in the wall, like pretending to be a washing machine. And people like trying to push laundry in him or oh to, no yeah. I've not oh, it's, it's absolutely brilliant oh. i've got a really good joke about flight tenants and washing machines but i'm just not gonna say it on air i'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> thank you very much you need to send it in to betty <laughs> yeah she'll say it on her show yeah, she will. <laughs> all right uh so anyway I'll, I'll read a little bit of this um but it's really too long for us to read the entire facebook post and of course we don't even have permission from mike to do so uh, and this was uh, something that he posted in June of 2014, so a few years back. The woman standing at the back of the plane is about to piss her pants. I know this because five minutes ago she crawled over me and said, I'm sorry to disturb you, Mr. Rowe, but I'm about to piss my pants. Sadly, the kid across the aisle beat her to it. No doubt about it. The whole plane smells of urine and it's not coming from the bathroom. It's coming from the kid. We're on a CRJ 700 a Canadair regional jet flying from San Francisco to Kansas City. It's a three-hour flight, but it feels a lot longer. Why? Because the CRJ-700 was designed by the Marquis de Sade. There's only one bathroom on board, and it's all the way in the back. One bathroom for 74 people on a three-hour flight that was delayed on the tarmac for 35 minutes. Um, anyway, he's, he goes on to kind of complain about the fact that the airplane, the, uh, the, the, the lavatory is all the way in the back of the airplane. Now I was looking at this thinking one per 74 passengers. Let's see the airplane that Dana and I fly about twice as many passengers. We have three restrooms, but really the first class lavatory is limited to the, how many do we have up there? 16, 16 up front and the rest of the airplane. 16 base. Jeff. Yes. Thank you. Uh, something like that. I could, I could do all the math. Um, but, uh, he was, he's, he was mentally counting in his head. He's like, well, yeah, it's like, how many rows? And there's two or four rows of four. There's eight he rows. He was wondering whether to include the flight. Four rows of four. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's move on. Uh, shall we? Um, the rest of the passengers, um, have to share two restrooms in the back. So it's really about the same ratio. So, uh, and it's in the back of the 88. So I'm saying, uh, I'm not sure that, I quite understand where he's coming from here, but basically that was the other yes. thing I was going to say. The 700 really, because when I was starting to read this, I'm thinking, well, I could see maybe complaining about the 200, but the 700 is actually quite a comfortable it's a cavern. Airplane. Yeah. You, I could actually lay straight across on the, not that I would do this, but I could lay straight down across the floor. We've had reports that you have, Dana, so... Well, there are, the there are other things that people have reported that they've done back there, but I'm just not involved with that. Okay. Uh, anyway, we'll we'll put a link 
to uh, this story in the show notes from uh, Texas Charlie. Um, but, you know, I can, yeah, I mean, things aren't perfect in today's world of flying. <laughs> Far from it. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, you be the judge. Read Mike Rose post from 2014. See if you uh, can, uh, can, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, relate, relate. That's it. Thank you. Wow. I need wow. More sleep. Uh, ben sends us this single pilot freighters. Sure. Works fine until something goes wrong. And then he sends us a link to a, uh, an investigation. Uh, from the AT, ATSB.gov.au, so aus, the Australian um, Transportation Safety Board, uh, that was a Metroliner with a single pilot conversion, which is permitted in Oz for freight operations. One can only surmise that if there had been two pilots on board, then maybe with one flying and one sorting out the problem, the accident wouldn't have happened? Question mark. The summary goes on 9th April 2008, Fairchild Industries Metro 3 aircraft departed Sydney Aircraft, New South Wales, on a freight charter flight to Brisbane, Queensland, with one pilot on board. The aircraft was subsequently observed on radar to be turning right, contrary to air traffic control instructions to turn left to an easterly heading. The pilot reported that he had a slight technical fault and no other transmissions were heard from the pilot. Recorded radar data showed the aircraft turning right and then left, followed by a descent and a climb, a second right turn and a second descent before radar returns were lost when the aircraft was at an altitude of 3,740 feet above mean sea level and descending at over 10,000 feet per minute. Little excessive. Air traffic control initiated search actions and search vessels later recovered a small amount of aircraft wreckage floating in the sea south of the last recorded radar position. The pilot was presumed to be fatally injured and the aircraft was destroyed. Both of the aircraft's onboard flight recorders were subsequently recovered from the ocean floor. Let me try that again. Both of the aircraft's onboard flight recorders were subsequently recovered from the ocean floor. They contained data from a number of previous flights, but not for the accident flight. There was no evidence of a mid-air breakup of the aircraft. The investigation determined that it was highly likely that the pilot took off without alternating current electrical power supplied to the aircraft's primary flight instruments, including the pilot's artificial horizon and both flight recorders. It's most likely that the lack of primary attitude reference during the night takeoff <laughs> led to pilot spatial disorientation and subsequent loss of control of the aircraft. A significant safety issue was identified in respect to the aircraft operator's training and checking of its pilots. As a result of audits conducted following the accident, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority imposed a number of conditions on the operator's air operator's certificate that were reportedly actioned by the operator. Okay, so single pilot, you're flying a Metro 3 at night. How do you not notice that there is no electrical power to the primary flight instruments is does this person not recognize flags in view there would be flags all over the place wouldn't there be yeah should be shouldn't there? i would think so should be a dock pre-dock cockpit at that point yeah I, it's just fatigue well, or... i mean that might have been part of the problem if his cockpit's a bit dark he perhaps didn't realize and uh you know fixated on the 
instrument rather than looking around and picking up the peripheral things like flags. Or the fact his lights on his panel weren't even working at all. Yeah, that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. I This I, doesn't make any sense to me. It would be no. so obvious to me with flags and maybe very, very dim lighting. Perhaps the standby or emergency lighting may have provided enough little bit of a light to make it look like the instruments were set properly. I don't know. Do you think it was a bit of press-onitis? He decided to try and get the flight done and get it fixed at wherever he was headed to. He was going home. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't realize how hard it would be uh, flying at night without decent instrumentation. I don't know. Could, could be. And, and, and unfortunately a lot of times these cargo night freight operators, they don't fly with the best equipment and you end up taking unnecessary risks and add that to fatigue because it was probably very late in the, at night, probably didn't catch anything, and, and just started to have I that. to be really fatigued not to notice that. Though. Yeah, well. Hmm. Maybe not a lot of experience. It really doesn't go into we, what we see here didn't give us a lot of information about how much experience this pilot had. No, it doesn't. That might have been a part of it. All right. Thank you, uh, Ben, for um, kind of giving us a story that uh, makes you pause and think about whether it's a, a, a smart thing for us to be operating uh, complex airplanes, only single pilot. Perhaps, you know, having another pilot there go, uh, hey, dude, yeah, you want to turn the uh, master switch on or whatever it is that turns on all the lights? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, Nelson, uh, Lisboa Nelson, uh, sent us some feedback, and he says, hey, Cap Jeff, first feedback to the APG had to be about ACME MRO. So MRO stands for maintenance, refurbishing, something rather, something like that. Acronyms are dangerous. Yeah, they uh, are. Why don't we look that up while I continue? Uh, but it has something to do with um, the the activity of maintaining and refurbishing. Yeah, I guess my right repairing overhaul. That's it. Uh, maintenance repair operation. Mr. O. It's not my red orifice. Mm, we wouldn't want to right here. <laughs> okay. All right. I must be thinking that, of a different I mean. MRO. Yeah. So. Maintenance <laughs> repair order. Well, that is an MRO, but I think step. I think is the closest here. Maintenance. I'm trying to find repair for sure. and what was it said overhaul. But overhaul. I don't know. That's, that's it. I think that's that. That's right. Anyway, his employer uh, that he calls Acme MRO. Uh, did you know uh, Agma is only the sixth worldwide company in the aeronautical industry to reach the centenary? We celebrated the centennial on the 29th of June, a very emotional day to all of us. The show keeps improving by the day. Wow, he hasn't listened in a while. <laughs> yeah, no. I'll watch the video for that matter. I think he did have a backlog to catch up on. Yeah, yeah. He's probably only on like 50 or something. Um, I've had a bad case of APG syndrome. Uh, won't be able to make it to Fombra. Ah, cause we saw Liz, uh, Lisboa, um, Nelson, Nelson excuse yeah. me. Um, is, his uh, surname? Liz, no, oh. it's the town of Lisbon in Portugal, oh, in Portuguese. Wow. Completely off. Nelson <laughs> met Nelson. Uh, last time we were here at Fombra. Um, so, uh, I, I remember that fondly and, uh, um, Sorry, you couldn't make it out this time, Liz, uh, Nelson, <laughs> Lisbon. <laughs> uh, 
close enough. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, well, that was fifty percent, but yeah, I'm not, not even sure. Anymore. I don't. I don't. I'm not even sure I can fix that in post. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> okay, so he uh, sent us um, a link to uh, his company, uh, OGMA, uh, flying with you since 1918. So very, very good. Congratulations on working for a company that uh, has been around for a hundred years. That's absolutely uh, pretty amazing. Um, Silview writes, hello, APG crew and listeners, Silview here. Due to the increased frequency of Captain Jeff mumbles when reading feedback. <laughs> okay, Liz, would you please uh, remove Silview from the, uh, the feedback? You know, put the filters in, right? Okay, we don't want to hear from him again. Anyway, uh, he continues, I am sincerely considering sending in some audio feedback. Yeah, you do that. You see how easy this is. <laughs> yes. Um, in the meantime, though, uh, I'm sending the message so that Captain Jeff can redeem himself. <laughs> I have stumbled upon an interesting video about a very interesting unmanned aircraft developed by uh, Area I, and I could see a, quite a lot of applications for such an aircraft. The fact that the parts are easily swapped with different designs has its benefits in being highly versatile couple uses that I could see. Number one, increasing the frequency and potency of those chemical trails by flying closer to the ground with more potent chemical agents. Ooh, good point. Uh, so that would be one less button in the cockpit for you to operate. That is true. Now a bit more serious, so you can discuss the first application before moving on. Uh, two, testing wing shapes for different applications, helping with development of wing designs. Three, weather system and hurricane development surveillance. Four, traffic survey for roads. Five, it could even be used as a firefighting tool or emergency support. My guess would be that unmanned aircraft won't be carrying anything of irreplaceable value, such as human lives, anytime soon. But it will replace some aircraft in the sky. Let me know what you think. Here's the link. It gives us the link to the article. As always, blue skies, tailwinds, unlimited visibility, and less flying in Los Angeles. Haze is acceptable. Countless IPAs for Steph, Jeff, and Nick, plus rivers of well-aged bourbon for Captain Dana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Congrats on the upgrade, and everything you say about flight training really resonates with me since I'm going through it. Cheers. All right. And uh, shall I play just a little bit of the video just to kind of get a little taste of that? Uh, sure, uh, yeah. Okay, here we go. This is from YouTube, the title, Unmanned Research Aircraft Test Cutting Edge Innovations. Up, down, right rudder, left rudder, released. Okay, brakes are on, that's max brakes. My name is David Stewart, and I am the external pilot for the Area Eyes Terra aircraft. Testing this kind of an airplane and doing research with it is, is primarily what I've always done. The unique thing about, about being a pilot of an airplane like Terra is that it's multi-engine. It has the capability, although we're not flying it with retractable gear, of, of being a retractable gear airplane. It is a heavy, complex, high-speed airplane, and it flies like that. Once they get above that 70, 80,000 RPM, they're about 50% and they'll go together um, pretty closely. But down here, they're probably like 
there's your little taster of the uh, video and uh, the area eye. It looks like a little, uh, I mean, a small scale version of like an Airbus narrow body or even a 737. A uh, mm-hmm. little twin engine. Tiny little jet engines on yeah. it. They were cute. Looks like a lot of fun, though. These yeah, guys are just playing around. To pilot it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Serious research. Right. No, no, it is, really. Um, thank you. Silvio. Silvio. And thank you so much for your confidence in my mumbling. I do appreciate that. Again, Liz, I'm not kidding. Nothing else from Silvio. Okay. Just kidding. Um, now, let's continue. Liz, speaking of our producer, sent us uh, a link to this article. Helicopter fuel leak put a 747-8F at risk of explosion. Failure to defuel a helicopter before it was shipped on board a Cargo Lux Boeing 747-8F resulted in a serious leak of more than 250 kilograms of fuel, presenting a substantial risk of explosion and badly contaminating the jet's interior. It was a Bell 412 EP helicopter destined to be shipped to Germany. Uh, It was being transported on the 747 from Houston to Luxembourg on 30 March last year with an intermediate stop in Glasgow, Prestwick. Ground crews at Prestwick discovered a fuel leak from the helicopter and emergency personnel summoned to the scene found fuel pooling beneath the jet and it leaked from the main deck through the lower deck and avionics bay firefighters subsequently stated that measured fuel vapor levels indicated a high risk of explosion and fuel flammability limits were potentially in range says the uk air accidents investigation branch some 255 kilograms of fuel equating to 322 liters had escaped from the helicopter during the transatlantic flight Before being shipped, the inquiry says, the helicopter spent two months in storage in Houston without problems, and there was no evidence of a fuel system issue. Investigators point out that the helicopter structure was shrink-wrapped for transport. The probe suggests that the manner in which its fuel vents were wrapped could have resulted in a siphon effect or a temporary deformation or deformation of the fuel cells as cabin pressure changed, causing fuel to be ejected from the forward right-hand vent, which had been left exposed. Uh, yeah, so it looks like uh, that should have been maybe drained of fuel before they put the thing on, and looks like they really got away with one there. Yeah, that's nasty. Uh, and that might have been one of those awful unexplained losses, because if that lot had gone off and uh, you know the, the crew had uh, lost the aircraft without being uh, able to explain what had happened, you know, he... Mid-Atlantic, it would have been another like uh, the Malaysian. An aircraft just disappears and you never know the cause. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it definitely sounds like it. Oh, sorry. That was my bad. I was trying to chew chips silently over here. Oh, we want to hear you chew. Come on. No, you don't. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> um, no, I, I, from what I understand, it definitely needed to be defueled before being loaded as, as oh, cargo. Yeah. yeah. Don't want to be transporting that around. Yeah. A good, full load of fuel. Good thing they don't smoke on airplanes anymore. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. Sure. Point. <laughs> that yeah. Would, the, I mean, boom. Well, you never know on those cargo aircrafts. Yeah. Who's going to dub you in? Exactly. They probably were smoking. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Got lucky. Uh, especially cargo locks. Come on. No, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Exactly. Sorry if you're listening. No, no, I'm locks. with you, Jeff. <laughs> those cargo boys, they're cowboys. Yeah. Um, number eight, Mississippi Matt. Uh, hey, APG crew, thought this was pretty funny seeing sharks on Flight Aware. Huh? 
Acme needs to step up and do something creative as this. Love the show, Mississippi Matt. Well, we'll have to talk to Acme and see if we can do something creative like this. Southwest Airlines rolls out five shark-themed Boeing 737s for Shark Week, so they have some special paint on the airplane toward the front, uh, kind of. Well, I think it's a great idea. So it's got a symbol representing the aircraft uh, that's different to a normal airplane shape. So you know, all the bin liners could have a little waist bin, like you have uh, <laughs> on you know on your computer, and uh, all the Airbuses could be really sleek and pointy and go faster. And that kind what about of the Mad Dogs? What the I'm, Mad Dogs? I want you to point into the mic. Oh, We're losing sorry. You. Losing me. Yes. Uh, the Mad Dogs. Well, they could be just that, couldn't they? Be uh, foaming at the mouth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it would look very dogs. good painted in a, as a shark, the whole airplane. No, I, I think as a bulldog, I go, arr, arr. Have you seen these little displays on FlightAware, though, where it looks like a yeah. shark? Um, Nick, can I actually pay your the ugliest airplane in the world, I think, the A380? I need to pay it a compliment. Oh, really? Because yesterday at Farnborough, Farnborough? Yeah. Farnborough. Let me say it right. At Farnborough, that 380 that was over there that you didn't get to go take a look at mm. uh, was had a fantastic paint job. Oh, really? And uh, I'm going to show the uh, people in the, on the, on the, sh- on the crew um, mm. the f- picture of one side of the airplane. Okay. It's a beautiful picture. I'll describe it because, you know, the, this aircraft actually is a very nice advertising mural because it's so darn big. And it has pictures of um, fish on it and coral. And the fish that they have on there are, um, um, oh, my God, I'm having a brain fart. Clownfish. Clownfish, you're right. I'm clowning around. Anyways, uh, so that's uh, in some... Like Finding Nemo? Yeah, Finding Nemo. And some angelfish and coral. And it says, not too late for coral reefs. And it's a beautiful blue. And then, uh, or teal. And on the other side of the aircraft, it's a dark blue. And uh, with all the the fish with bones, all the coral reef shown as dead. And it says, coral reefs gone by 2050. Oh wow! So well, that's a big mm. message. That was that was at the air show at Farnborough, Farnborough. And what I'll do is I'll send these over to Jeff so he can put them in the show notes, um, so you guys can look at this. So I am paying your Airbus three eighty a compliment because it represents uh, the exact thing we're kind of talking about here with logos on the outside of the airplane. And I saw the uniforms. I did not get to see because it doesn't say on the outside of the airplane. I'm looking a little bit to, a little bit further in which airline it was. I, I, uh, it's High Fly, I think. High Fly airline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they I just think it's received their three eighties charter. Yeah, uh, well, I, I didn't recognize the uniform and didn't say so. Anyways, uh, compliments to the uh, the beautiful murals that are on the outside of that nice three eighty, and it actually made the three eighty look very attractive to me. Yeah, good. I think the. Coolest thing about it, though, is uh, the fact that they partnered with FlightAware and using the flight tracking site, you actually, instead of seeing a little airplane silhouette, you see a shark. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, Yeah, that's very good. Very cool. Well, thank you, Mississippi Matt, for that feedback. Uh, Nick Wilson from the UK, not you. Different. uh, But he's in the UK. 
Different last name, though. Uh, hi, ABG crew. Today, there is a news story about an incident caused by pilots smoking an e-cigarette in the cockpit. Because we did talk about on uh, that mm-hmm. on the last show, I believe. Yeah. Um, and it made me think how times have changed in commercial aviation over the years. For example, passengers smoking in the cabin. What memories do your hosts have of flying in the 70s and 80s and how much different it is to flying in the year 2018? Were pilots ever allowed to smoke in the cockpit? I'm in holiday in Berlin at the moment. I have today visited the old Temple Airport, uh, Tempelhof Airport in Berlin. It was closed to airline traffic in 2008, but is preserved as a historic building, in particular due to its World War II era architecture and the role it played in the Berlin airlift. If any of the ABG community are visiting Berlin, I'd encourage participating in the two-hour tour. Here are a few photos that I took today, which I'm happy to share with the community. And we'll put his uh, feedback in the show notes so you can also look at the uh, Tempelhof uh, Berlin Airport. And uh, let's see, memories flying in the 70s and 80s and how much different it is to flying in the 2018. Now, these youngsters here to my left probably weren't even born in that. What, what time were you born in? What year? 1982. 82. Okay, so you <laughs> probably, right. yeah. Maybe Dana was born in, what, 70-something? 70, 70. 70, okay. So probably don't remember much about flying in the 70s, right? Actually, I remember, remember quite a bit because oh. I was on airplanes starting when I was about uh, four years old. Oh, okay. So I remember smoking on the aircraft. I remember being well, did stuck. Did you? Age four? The, wow. Wow. Well, no. Yeah, we started you young in the U.S. Seven. I mean, seven. <laughs> you I was flying. Seven flying. when you were smoking on aircraft? I was smoking. I mean, I was sitting in the back of the airplane, sipping on bourbon, smoking a cigarette. And I just got off the out of the lavatory with the flight attendant. So, you know, it was perfect. <laughs> You know, Dana always takes it to the next level. No, this is a family show. And and uh, that's really not where we want him to go with it. But, no, uh, it's exactly where you want me to go with it. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyways, yes, I, I, I remember smoking sections on the aircraft um, back when I was flying as a unaccompanied minor heading down to Florida to visit grandma and grandpa. So And I did that two or three times a year. And I remember a couple of times specifically because, and the reason why I'm so scarred with it is because my mother smoked for her almost her entire life and I hated the smell and hated being around it. So, uh, there was a couple of times I had to sit back there. Mm-hmm. Didn't appreciate that at all. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Steph, any memories of smoking on an airplane? No. No. I think by, um, by the time I was doing any real flying, I mean, I, I, I remember some trips that I took as a young child, but. I don't think there was any smoking going on in the aircraft. Certainly in the airports. Yeah. Yeah. There well, was there were smoking. I was hired by Acme in nineteen eighty eight and there were still um smoking sections uh, in airplanes. I think they were it was right around that time is when they started um eliminating it, like shortly after that, uh, from domestic flights, but they were still smoking on international flights for several years into the mid nineties, I think. Um and I do remember one of my first flights in a 727, and as soon as the gear went up, the uh, captain actually started lighting, lighting up, and I went, whoa, that's wow. odd. Uh, 727, old, crusty guy, um, like me now, but I don't smoke, so well, that's the I difference. I remember vividly my father quizzing me when I was uh, 
potential pilot, uh, he said, uh, okay then, uh, son, um, you're flying along at flight level 390 and you lose an engine. What's the first thing you do? And I went, ah, you lose an engine. Uh, you put the throttles on the other engines? He said, nope. He, I said, uh, you reach for the fire handle? I, he said, nope. You, know, you really want to know what the first thing you do when you lose an engine? I said, yeah. He said, you sit back and light a cigarette. I thought you were going to say put it out. No. <laughs> yeah, stop smoking. <laughs> stop smoking and start thinking about what the hell's going on here. I, uh, I, I think he, what he was getting at was that so many guys, when they get that sort of shock situation, they just want to move their hands around and do something. Whereas, actually, the first thing you want to do is to just sit back, take stock, assess, make sure which engine it is, look at the situation and so his way of making sure that he uh, sat back and thought about it for a few seconds before he started instigating a, a drill was to light a cigarette i see now that's very interesting nick because it's funny how f- things have changed because your dad talked about lighting a cigarette take time you know take your time and then it went to like jeff's wearing over here he's got a good old-fashioned clock that you a watching clock that you can pull it out and start winding a clock and you know just playing yeah. with it a little bit so they, they used used to you know say go ahead and, and wind you know play with the clock and set the time and just relax a few minutes or sit on your hands now I, I, they still say the same thing but it's pretty hard when you have an eye watch you can still oh. wind the clock on an airplane you just go reach down and you start winding you play with that one the sure. clock yeah that's what i always assumed when they said wind the clock in other words do something don't jump to any conclusions and do, you know, be too hasty. Yeah, take your time, yeah. relax, take a deep breath, think about things. Yeah. So, not really related, but <laughs> <laughs> the the medical corollary stories that I've heard in the past that come to mind is that, um, you know, the attending physicians knew how long they had spent in a patient's room in the hospital by, they, they would be smoking out in the hallway doing their rounds before they go into the patient's room. This is way back in the day, obviously. Doctors smoking. Um, they would put their cigarette up on top of the door frame, go into the patient's room, spend the time with the patient, come back out, retrieve the cigarette, and they knew how long they'd been in there by <laughs> how far it had <laughs> I love it. Knew how much to bill the patient. Exactly. Yeah, I've billed this patient half a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 15 minutes. Yeah. Those are just stories, by the way. I have no idea if that's actually true or not. Probably are. But Probably true. Yeah. And oh. by the way, I hear what you were talking about earlier now. I'm sorry? Do you hear the birds? Oh, yes. Yes, it's like amplified in my ears. I hear jet engines. Yeah. I hear that too. Yeah, I wish you all could be here in this beautiful conservatory and uh, hearing the birds and uh, the airplanes flying overhead. It's a great place to be. And uh, and actually quite a very nice breeze at this moment. Yeah, oh, it is. Very, very pleasant nice. time of the day. It is. And uh, speaking of very pleasant, uh, we're going to go ahead and play this week's installment of the Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Barbie Monsters. How'd I do? No? I don't know. We'll find out in a minute. Okay, let's find out. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Barbie Sea Monsters. My friend Nige was an Air Force Jaguar pilot and used to low flying. 
He regularly trained to fly at only 100 feet above the ground, skimming along at 420 knots or more. When that kind of flying was the bread and butter of your life, you became damn good at it. Or pretty soon you'd be joining your ex-colleagues in the afterlife. However, one day he was doing some work with a Norwegian Air Force squadron of F-104 starfighters. The squadron was spending a while up in the north of the country, in Bodo to be precise, and when they could, the units offered each other flights in their two-seaters. So Nige is sitting in the back of this F-104, watching an eight-ship attack mission, and his young Scandahooligan pilot in the front starts to descend down towards the ocean. Passing Nigel's comfort level, the descent continued and the horizon started to rise up around the cockpit, higher and higher, until the radio altimeter was unreadably low. With his hand on the ejector seat handle, he waited to see if the sea was going to start engulfing the cockpit, but at around ten feet or so, the aircraft stabilised and sat there quite comfortably. Nigel's pilot wasn't just showing off, this was the way they flew as they approached the ship they were targeting so that they could stay underneath the radar horizon and avoid detection. Perhaps surprisingly, in Nigel's mind, they returned quite safely to Bodo and once he could speak properly again, he asked his young pilot how he was able to fly so close to the water. Oh, it's easy, came the reply. You just descend down until you feel the ground effect pushing back, and the aircraft sits happily there. So what is this magical effect that let that pilot sit comfortably, literally skimming the waves? When a wing creates lift, it causes a pressure differential between the upper and lower surfaces, and beneath the wing, the pressure is higher. In addition, the wing deflects the air passing around it downwards, giving a resultant force acting upwards. These changes in airflow normally dissipate in the air around the wing, but when the wing is very close to the ground, the presence of that impermeable barrier changes the nature of the effects. The increase in pressure below the wing is felt like a cushion of air, and the closer to the ground the wing is, the stronger the effect. Whilst in ground effect, the wing requires a lower angle of attack, that's the angle of the wing measured against the direction of the oncoming airflow, to produce the same amount of lift. The ground also helps to prevent the air spilling from beneath the wing to above it around the wingtips, which creates the highly draggy wingtip vortices that we often refer to as lift-dependent drag. This means that while in ground effect, the aircraft needs less thrust to fly at the same speed. These are a series of little aerodynamic gifts that the presence of the earth, or the sea come to that, give the machine flying just above it. Of course, ground effect can be a slight annoyance. When trying to land an aircraft, particularly one with a low-mounted wing, we have to overcome the pressure to actually get our wheels onto the runway. It can cause an aircraft to float down the runway, not really decelerating a lot and flying below the normal stall speed. 
in an airliner it can be quite a problem, as with the engines at idle and the runway fast disappearing beneath, it's easy to both eat up too much runway to land safely, and it can take a long time to get the engines spooled up again to safely go around. The first time I ever landed a 340 with my father on board, in an effort to impress him, I tried too hard to make a silky smooth landing and flared a tiny bit too much. I sat there in ground effect, smoothly gliding along, watching the runway disappear with the radalt calling our height. Five, 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 five. With a gentle derotation, I got the machine to settle on, but we ended up taxiing off from the far end of the runway at a part of the airfield that was very unfamiliar. The effect was first observed in large marine birds, who seemed to fly enormous distances with unaccountably little effort as they skimmed the surface of the water. By the 1920s, aerodynamicists were familiar with the phenomenon. The Frenchman, Maurice Lesueur, wrote, Here the imagination of inventors is offered a vast field. The ground interference reduces the power required for level flight in large proportions, so here is a means of rapid and at the same time economic locomotion. At first glance, this apparatus is dangerous because the ground is uneven and the altitude, called skimming, permits no freedom of manoeuvre, but on large-sized aircraft over water, the question may be attempted. In the 30s, the first hybrid designs, something between a high-speed launch and a ground-effect vehicle, were created by the Finnish designer and engineer Thomas Cario, and he is considered by many to be the father of the ekranoplane, meaning ground-effect vehicle concept. The word is derived from the Russian language, and although Alexander Lipich, a German working in America, was developing designs, it was indeed the Russians who were taking it very seriously. Led by Rostilav Alexeyev, a Soviet shipbuilder who worked for the Soviet Central Hydrofoil Design Bureau, they worked on several designs until at last they were ready to go forward to a full-size version. It was in September 1966 that an American spy satellite orbited over a Soviet naval base on the Caspian Sea, its cameras clicking away. When the images reached the intelligence officers, they created quite a stir. There was a lot of head-scratching amongst the analysts as they tried to work out what on earth they were looking at. The Soviets had built what appeared to be a vast flying boat, with ten huge engines, two on the fin, although in one image they appear to be mounted on a vertical pylon on top of the cockpit, and eight mounted just behind the flight deck in pods on horizontal pylons either side of the fuselage. The fuselage was over 300 feet long, around 92 metres, and the tail was a huge V-shaped T-tail with a high dihedral, but the wings... Nobody had any idea what was up with the wings. They were mounted low on the fuselage and they looked incredibly short and fat, way too small for a craft of that size. Perhaps they were still being built, but even if completed, they thought that it would fly really badly. 
What on earth were they doing? When they worked out all the sums, they just didn't add up. This aircraft was going to weigh over a million pounds. That's around 550 metric tons. As they studied it, they saw that on one side was a Soviet Navy flag, and on the other, the letters Kilo Mike, KM. So they dubbed this unbelievable machine the Caspian Monster, since it was being built on the edge of the Caspian Sea. From this came the more usual name, the Caspian Sea Monster. What it actually stood for was Corrible Maquette, meaning prototype ship. So what exactly had the spy satellites found? The aircraft, or ship if you like, because there's still debate as to which category it should fall into, was a classic Ekranoplan ground effect aircraft, but built on a massive scale. The concept was very smart. Although this was an experimental prototype, it was projected to carry 900 fully equipped troops. Being a ground effect vehicle, it would cruise at only around 20 feet or so above the sea, so would stay undetected beneath most ground-based radars and cruise up to a foreign beach to disgorge its load of troops. Being such an efficient form of flight, its expected range was nearly a thousand miles. For the Western analysts, this all was conjecture and intrigue, and they devoted a special task force which went as far as developing a purpose-built unmanned drone called the Aquiline just to discover what it was. However, Despite all this effort, it wasn't until the 1980s, well after the sea monster had sunk, that they discovered that the Caspian monster was a vast Ekranoplan ground effect vehicle. For the Soviets, things weren't as easy when developing a new form of vehicle as they hoped, and the testing of the sea monster went on for years until it crashed due to pilot error. It floated for a week before slowly sinking, it was thought that saving such a vast machine was going to be just too difficult. The KM remained the largest aircraft in the world during the entirety of its existence and was not surpassed until the Antonov AN-225 in 1988, eight years after its destruction. However, from what they had learned, they continued to work on similar craft. Soon a vast missile carrier was skimming along the ocean, the Lund-class Ekranoplan. Only a little smaller than the KMC monster, the two rear engines were replaced with a large sensor array, and along the top of the fuselage were three pairs of Mosquit P-270 guided missiles, NATO named Sunburn, in angled launches, with their guidance radars mounted in the nose and on the tail. The P-270 was a supersonic, about Mach 2.3, ramjet-powered anti-ship missile which could carry both conventional and nuclear warheads, so this Ekranoplan had the potential to be a highly destructive craft. However, only a single machine was built, the MD-160, NATO codenamed Duck, which entered service with the Black Sea Fleet in 1987 and served for around a decade. 
These vast, unwieldy machines weren't a success, mainly because of their inability to manoeuvre well. Despite flying so low and with such short wings, any hint of a hard turn could dig a wingtip float into the ocean, which would result in the massive craft cartwheeling to destruction. However, not willing to give up on the concept, a similar ekranoplan was built weighing only 140 tonnes. This was the A-90 Oleonok, designed as a beach assault vehicle, and was more flexible since it could climb out of ground effect to up around 10,000 feet, and was equipped with wheels for beaching and operating from land-based runways. It was powered by two turbofans buried in the nose and angled down to assist takeoff. Once off the water and in-ground effect, these could be shut down, and the remaining turboprop with contra-rotating propellers mounted in the tail would be sufficient for the cruise. Although the plan was to have a large number of these more versatile aircraft, only five were built before funding was abruptly cut off. The first was used for static testing, but the remaining four remained in service with the Soviet Navy until 1993. So ended the military interest in such machines, but in more recent times the concept has fascinated designers from many countries. There have been several experimental craft. The jury is still out on whether it's a ship or an aircraft, but generally considered to be a ship unless it can climb out of ground effect, in which case it's an aircraft, which include the Hoverwing, built by the University of Duisburg-Essen, and the Airfish series, designed by Alexander Lippich. Aerofoil development in Germany built the flight ship, and even Bert Rutten has been dabbling with the concept. But all these machines are lightweight, prop-driven, miniature versions of the sea monster. Other countries have had a go, including South Korea, Iran, France and China, to name just a few. Good heavens, even Boeing got in the act with the Boeing Pelican Ultra, standing for ultra-large transport aircraft. This concept ship aircraft thing was projected to carry a vast amount of cargo and was put in the category of outsized cargo ground effect freight aircraft. Cruising at 240 knots in ground effect, it was going to weigh nearly 6 million pounds, that's 2,700 metric tonnes, It was going to be 390 feet long and have a wingspan that would increase from 340 feet to 500 feet when the folding wings were spread. When in ground effect, this was going to give this Goliath an effective wingspan of 804 feet. At maximum payload, the claim was that it would have a range of 3,000 nautical miles, but with a smaller payload, The range increased to 10,000 nautical miles, but reduced it again if it climbed up to a potential 20,000 feet. It would carry 180 standard shipping containers in the fuselage on two decks, and another 20 inside the wings. Operating from conventional airports, it had 76 fuselage-mounted wheels to support its vast weight. 
Perhaps a little fanciful, this concept aircraft was thought of in 2002 and, had it been supported, would have flown in 2015 by Miami Rick. By the way, all that came from Flight Global and Boeing Frontiers, except for the Miami Rick bit. There have also been moves to recreate the Ekranoplan, machines that the Soviets built in both civil and military versions. Because of the attractiveness of the amazing fuel efficient inherent in this style of flight, which is so very appealing. I guess we may see more of them in the future, but until they get over the problems of manoeuvrability and work out how to avoid the big waves, I for one will be happier at 39,000 feet. Did I hear you say, Nick, six million pounds? Yeah, but then again, Boeing were going to build a supersonic airplane and look what happened to that. He never fails to get in a dig on <laughs> Boeing aircraft. Hey, actually, yes, but however. However? However, Jeff, remind me to send you that photo. That way we can post it on the show notes. Because we have photographic evidence that Nick, in fact, does like Boeing. No, no, no. I'll happily prostitute myself to get a free entry into an air show. <laughs> oh, we, but we do have the video. So what you're saying is there is an underlying love there. No, he actually he actually said yesterday, "Why don't we go into the Boeing exhibit?" Yeah, I wanted to make fun of it. And he never made it to the Airbus exhibit. In fact, so there's a problem. It was a long walk. (laughs) Oh, it was not a long walk. Oh, come on. You know, I have to say, I wasn't. I I don't know personally. I wasn't that impressed by that Boeing display. Yeah. I mean, I love Boeing airplanes, but that display thing and the virtual reality for me, it didn't even work. And the augmented reality or whatever they were calling it, it was like, eh, okay, like a little airplane flying around, but, but I don't, but, but, but unlike the Boeing experience, but unlike, <laughs> unlike now, even though I was very disappointed in the end, after I stood in line for about 25 minutes, um, unlike Airbus, who wouldn't allow you to get on their product at all. At least there's a Boeing 777, which, by the way, that was the first time I've ever set foot and was highly disappointed. Well, I expect that's more Emirates trying to display their it wasn't fancy Emirates. cabin. Oh, Qatar. 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 Trying to display Qatar. their fancy cabin, Qatar. not really Boeing doing well, it. Well, that be, may be true. However, uh, got on the aircraft and got to experience their product. But the highly disappointing part of that was that the flight deck was closed. I could not look in the flight deck. I didn't give a two rats you know what about seeing the rest of the airplane yeah, as much as i want to see what's in the flight deck but and it's uh, close that that that's qatar qatar is sort of appealing to their past customer base uh pilots aren't their customer base passengers are so they just want to show and get the media to look at their passenger cabins so it doesn't actually surprise me that they didn't have a cockpit visit for you yeah we're a minority unfortunately yeah yeah well, well, we Oh, it's supper time. I'm sorry for the uh, canine interference. The ambiance. But it's a little bit of shouting from the princess saying that her supper isn't getting here fast enough. He was in the process of making a heart shape with the Boeing on his stomach. I see that. Yes, Uh, I think that's... Well, uh, or in the process of doing something else that, well, I can't say. It's a family show. (laughs) Uh, 
I'm not but saying we a have word. photographic evidence. I'm not saying a word. Okay. Then let's move on to Sean. Oh, by the way, is there anything more to be said about the ground effect? I think that is uh, an interesting subject. Yeah. And how it, they can create these huge monsters of airplanes. Well, I guess kind of airplanes. Yeah. Uh, well, is it some, uh, it, depending on the, the uh, who you speak to, some are defined as ships. And uh, unless they can fly out of ground effect, they uh, don't become an aircraft. And even then, there's a little bit of doubt it. Uh, but uh, no, they're uh, they're quite amazing, and the efficiency gains of uh, up to around forty percent. I mean, we talk now about scrabbling around trying to find one or two percent fuel efficiency or gains, but forty percent is a vast gain. Um, but the, of course, the inherent problems of having an aircraft that needs to be particularly a massive one so close to the ground and because the fact that you can't really bank it it has an enormous turning circuit its maneuverability is pathetic so uh you know they you've got to try and draw the line somewhere between having something that gains from that efficiency and something that can avoid uh the empire state building or whatever looms in front of it uh, perhaps it might be the Statue of Liberty. That might be more appropriate. Okay. Sean writes, when you're a pilot on medical leave with an airline, how is compensation handled? Is that one of those life events that you as a pilot need to budget for? Does the company or union provide some sort of insurance or pay for this time you're not flying? While I understand safety is the big concern, it seems like the company setting you aside for so many months is excessive. It's not like you're the only pilot up front yet. And I managed to get into the airline industry, but not in the way I'd planned it. Got a call on late Monday that my office has been appointed to the bankruptcy trustee for Penn Air, which is an Alaska regional carrier with strong ties to Alaska Airlines. Tentatively, it looks like this airline could be making good money with a few changes and leasing a few more aircraft. Still very early in the case for us, but we're going to do our darndest to keep it flying and not lay anyone off. Oh, good job, Sean. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. So your question about medical leave, I have not had to use it yet. Knock on wood. I'm knocking on my forehead. Um, but I believe the way it works at Acme Airlines is that, well, first of all, every year we're given a, a sick leave number of uh, hours, a sick leave balance. And uh, for me, because I've been around for so long, I believe it's something like 270 hours. Something like that. 240, I think. Or 240. No, no, I'm 240, you're 270. Yeah, 270 hours. And so basically, uh, a typical month, if I bid my schedule, would be somewhere between 75, 85 hours of flying time. So uh, it would just continue to uh, debit my sick leave bank until it was just exhausted. Now, if you are uh, using the sick leave during the year, then, of course, that balance may be less than 270 hours. I think mine is still, I don't know, maybe not quite 270, but I don't I don't usually use it uh, too often. And I think every three, and it's changed so much in the last several years, I don't know exactly how it works, but I think it, every three years it resets or you're allowed to reset it a certain number of times. Uh, do you recall, Dana, exactly how that works? Oh, that went away with its last contract. Oh, did it? Yeah. Okay, so what so, happens? Does so, the 270 just stay there the whole time? Yeah, every year, June 1st, it okay. news. Good. As far as I know, I mean, okay. that may be misbehaved misspeaking but well regardless um, of that way that works uh, after you've exhausted that sick leave and basically making full pay uh for however 
you know, many months you can go with that balance. Then I think you transition into short-term sick leave, which is, we discussed this before we started recording the show, and we believe it's a six-month period. Yeah, it's either three or six months, and it's actually short-term disability. Oh, short-term disability. Right. And that pays, does that pay at 100% or? 50. 50%. But then we have something that uh, the union uh, that that we donate money to, to kind of augment, supplement that 50% 50% from the company, and it basically brings you pretty, I think it brings you to 100%, doesn't it? It, it brings you just about to 100%, and what it is, is it's a uh, pilot mutual aid program that we pay into each individual uh, pilot has the opportunity uh, when you first get hired to select into the program or out of the program. So every month we contribute a set amount of money as, as a pilot group uh, into a fund. So what it does is it will go ahead and contribute um, money to your paycheck up to a total of two years, I believe it is. And I think this two, you're allowed, uh, I think it's either two or three separate instances. So um, it's not an unlimited uh, term and it will, uh, you know, be, be, it's really a contribution in excess of your, your uh, disability. Um, and it's really a nice tool because I, I had a buddy, a really close buddy of mine that had an automobile, automobile accident that almost uh, took his life. Uh, fortunately, it didn't, and he you know, had a long recovery. So the, deep, the uh, Pilot Mutual's aid program actually really helped him out in, in, in a lot of ways because he, he has four young children, so, and he's the sole breadwinner in the company. Uh, the company. In the, in, yeah, in family. The, his company. <laughs> he's the only one who makes it's money in the company. A microcosm yeah. of a company in his family. Yeah, his, his family. So he's the sole breadwinner of his uh, family. So that was a really hard time, but fortunately, uh, DPM, I mean, uh, Pop Mutual Aid, and I keep on saying the official term, um, they uh, they really came through. So it, it's a limited term. And then if for some reason you can't come back to work, then you would fall into long-term disability. And that's either after the three or six months. And I'm pretty sure it's six months that you would be out. Um, and that pays at about 50%, I guess? That's also at 50%. And I mean, indefinitely? Indefinitely, as long as you are... I guess um, as long as it's a covered um, covered issue. So, so let's say, for example, unfortunately, you go ahead and have either a heart attack or a stroke, and you're unable to ever fly again. You can't now. Heart attack necessarily is not a, a, a complete um, reason for you never to fly again. I mean, it depends on how much the damage is done, and whether whether you need to be on medication or whether it's a mild heart attack. A mild heart attack, you can actually come back from and come back to fly. So. Um, if it's a massive heart attack or stroke, then or a you know uh, you know a motorcycle accident, which I'm very very well aware of, um, and you become disabled in that form, then then for the rest of the career, as well as you can't as long as you can't make any other type of income, then they will pay at fifty percent. Nick, how does that compare to uh, the system that you're? Well, we have a kind of much more personalized and probably uh, a, a system that is. Uh, developed rather than being instigated. Uh, there are airlines out instigated? there. Instigated? Yeah, the agreed, instigated mm-hmm. by the union. So, so rather than having a system that is there, ours tends to be uh, considerably more flexible and depends on 
to a certain extent how generous the company are feeling. Of course, you've got a certain minimum, but they can go well over that if they think it's a compassionate case or a uh, a situation that uh, deserves sympathy. That's absolutely, uh, you know, that we get some heartrending cases when pilots become ill or whatever. Then they have gone above and beyond, really, uh, what would normally be considered uh, uh, within their contract if they felt the need. Uh, and they take they take each uh, pilot situation individually, but of course there are some airlines, and this is the danger when you're picking an airline to fly for. You know, the, outwardly the contract might look great, but you can't see into the future, and you don't know what your health situation might be a few years down the road or later on in your career. And it's then that you discover actually that the company is incredibly hard nosed, perhaps, and has very limited health uh, uh, situation now. Our company will, uh, generally speaking, and it, like I said, it depends. They don't have to do this, but they will keep you on more or less full pay for six months. Uh, and after that, you will uh, speak to HR and you'll probably go on to permanent health insurance, depending on the situation and whether you're expected to return or not, or whether it's going to be a situation that will keep you uh, away from work for uh, a lot longer. And permanent health insurance is a reduced, uh, 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 yeah, you're probably in the regional, I'm not absolutely certain, quite honestly, between 50 and 75% of your full pay, but, you know, that's quite enough. If you're not working and doing a lot of overheads, that can be quite a reasonable amount. Uh, and, of course, compare that with people working under a contract, uh, so they're more or less self-employed. Uh, as in a lot of airlines insist, you, you employ through a th third party and you're basically self-employed, you have no health benefits whatsoever. You've got nothing. So that if you fall sick and stop working, your pay stops. So there are a lot of airlines out there that do that. They really don't give two hoots, don't care two hoots. Whereas I'm very lucky to work working for an airline that is incredibly compassionate when it comes to people with uh, problems that are outside their control, and that's usually the situation with a health problem. Well, that's that's actually amazing to hear because over over in the states, I mean, I've dealt with it when I was at the regional carrier. I haven't necessarily dealt with it, but I know plenty of people that have at the uh, at the mainline carrier. Wow. I mean, it's they're completely incredibly compassionate when something major happens in your life, and they're there for you and will do whatever they can do, especially at our company. I've heard nothing but great things. Um, however, it's it's pretty much a cut and dry scenario. There is no extra. There is no additional. They will offer you insurance if you go on to a short-term or long-term disability, but you have to pay the full premium. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, so, no, we don't. It's just part of the deal. Uh, that's that's actually very nice to hear. It, exactly. And and we, I've from other people who've suffered from uh, – uh, from small or even very large health problems, they've had nothing but, uh, you know, really thoughtful and careful control and being looked after marvelously by my company. But I think we're in the minority. Yeah, I would agree with that because, you know, that's one of the things that with our pa previous contract uh, that they were going after is, is and, and I get it because there, there are a lot of people that view the sick time as, personal time off they call in and say you know the, the you know I, I don't feel like coming to work you yeah know, we, we've had a few pilots like that and, and they're pretty quickly weeded out to be fair because the rest of us realize that if you abuse this 
uh, generosity, it won't happen. And when you're in real need of it, and there are pilots that are in real need of it, have been long-term sick for a while, uh, you need to keep the company on site. So so in my experience, so I, I treat patients who have uh, conditions that often prevent them from working, and um, especially um, airline pilots are no exception if they have a, a spine problem, a disc herniation, um, causing pain, numbness, weakness, numbness, tingling, weakness in the extremities, especially in the leg. Um, so I've treated a few pilots um, just over the course of a couple of years. Um, but I will say that in general, pilots are exceptionally motivated to get better, get back to work. Um, usually I'm, it's kind of the reverse of what I normally see where I'm the one saying, no, I think you need a little bit more time out. We're going to ask for it. And generally the companies I've worked with have been very, um, receptive to that and are willing to work with what our recommendations are. Yeah, that's good. That's very good. Yeah. And, and I absolutely agree with that. Anytime I, you know, like when I was out with my Achilles, when those ruptured, it's like, come on, when am I going back to work? I mean, I'm, I'm very motivated. Pilots are generally pretty yeah, motivated. Very to, motivated. To, to work. There are exceptions, of course, and there are some. There's field. always exceptions, yeah. but you know, in general, what I've seen, and, and not to be stereotypical of different uh, types of workers out there, people in different professions, but uh, that's not true across the board. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that answered your question regarding how company uh, medical leave is handled at uh, well, at least a couple instances uh, here uh, from the APG crew. Thank you, Sean. Uh, John writes, I hope this feedback finds you all doing well. I'll do my best to keep this brief. In a recent episode, you guys discussed how, while there is a pilot shortage looming, that a big hurdle for people to get into the piloting world is the cost of training. While it is all relative, I suppose, I fall under that category of people for whom the sheer cost of flight training has prevented me from chasing my dream. I currently hold my private certificate and have about 100 hours of flight time. I flew a lot in college and shortly after, but adult responsibilities have a way of eating up expendable income, and it's been about two years since my last flight. My job as a golf course superintendent here in Baltimore has been very fulfilling, but my dream has always been to fly airplanes, airplanes for a living. I'm fortunate because I get to watch planes all day being outside for 10 to 12 hours a day. But every time I see one of those big Acme jets en route from Europe to the Acme mothership in Georgia, I can't help but think, man, I would be, or it would be awesome to fly one of those someday. So my question to you all is this, should I bite the bullet and just go for it? I'm in that age group who is old enough to remember when first year FOs were making below poverty. Eh. I'm in an age group who is old enough to remember when first-year FOs were making below-poverty-level salaries in the early to mid-2000s, which is why I stuck with turf grass management as, a, as opposed to going all-in on flying. These days, things seem to have changed for the better, and it has me considering making a career change. What do you guys think? I hope that was brief enough. Thanks again for the wonderful show. Next time you guys find yourselves flying over Baltimore... Look about 10 miles north of downtown and you'll see a golf course. That's where I am right now. <laughs> or, well, where I'll be for now. Thanks again, guys. 
Yeah, I, first of all, I must apologize for the slurping you can hear in the background for the last little while. Oh, I didn't was think I was slurping. Fault? Yeah, it was Steph drinking her beer. Oh, she, I'm sorry. Oh. I didn't realize that was going to be audible. Yeah, we no, no, that muted. was me drinking a beer because I'm not used to drinking <laughs> <Is that right>? <laughs> beer. <laughs> okay. But this is... this. Why do I feel a big edit coming out of this one? <laughs> <laughs> this is a great feedback. This, uh, this guy who... Is obviously not earning you know a mountain of money, uh, but wants to fulfil his dreams, and it's such a difficult thing because when you commit yourself financially to you know d do a course or enter the flying training world and try, try and build up hours, uh, as we know from lots of our listeners, it can be difficult and f a financial burden, and particularly if you're going to have to take out a major loan to do it, you can end up. Uh, flat strapped you really can uh and this is a difficult one because unless you've got a reasonable bucket of money to back up uh any potential failure then you could leave yourself in in dire financial straits so i'm not quite sure what the guys and girls here will think about this one so i think there's no right answer here but i think there are endless ways to be creative and to uh you know, if you have a dream, if you have a goal, if you have a passion, there are so many avenues out there these days to work on fulfilling that. And not to say that's going to be easy. Um, you know, I think the people who have done it and have been in maybe more um, tight financial situations have been very diligent and stringent in their budgeting um, and really making sure that they know that they've done their research, where they're going to be doing their flight training, making sure they're getting the best deals possible out of that. Um, and then once they've got their, you know, sufficient number of hours and sufficient ratings to get out there and actually start working and making it an income, uh, endeavor, as opposed to something that you're paying money to do to, to earn hours. So whether that's flight instructing or whether it's going out and doing something with a commercial certificate where y you don't necessarily need a whole lot of hours, but you can actually be hired by a company to do any number of things, whether it's like. Pipeline patrol, fire patrol, skydive, uh, jumper flying. You can do, I, I mean, uh, you know, photography stuff. There's there's endless opportunities, especially in the United States for that. Um, so there's, there's ways to do it, and you don't really need as many hours as some people perhaps think. It's more a matter of getting those ratings, um, have your commercial certificate, and be able to go out there and actually be employed as a pilot. So it's possible. It's not easy, but if you have... The passion and desire to do it, um, I think it's worth looking into. Yeah, well, and I'm, well, <laughs> I, I pulled up. I pulled up a. Uh, Everybody looked at me the exact same. No, no, no. Time. I, I have one, one more thing to say. Um, Go ahead. You know, he mentioned um, he can remember when first year FOs were making below poverty level salaries in the mid two thousands. I got a. Um, and I get these not infrequently, a postcard in the mail the other day from a regional airline in the U.S. advertising up to $56,000 first officer new hire bonus. Now, there's a catch to that. It's actually spread out over three years. However, that's in addition to a regular salary. So the, the pay has caught up somewhat. There you go. go ahead, Dana. <laughs> <Everybody's> Dana? <laughs> I actually... I actually uh, John, I'm, I'm the guy that did that, okay? And my my opinion and thought to that whole thing is when you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, do you want to live the rest of your life with a regret? And that's when I really realized that, no, I don't want to live that. 
uh, regret. I want to live the dream. So I threw everything out the window. I was making really good money, and I walked away from a very successful career um, to take a really big risk on whether I would ever make it to this level and ever become uh, a, a major airline pilot, let alone a captain now. So my my thoughts to you are that Steph needs to make a little more noise. Cheers. <laughs> up her beer. But uh, anyways, uh, John, do it. And that's that's the bottom line. Find a way to do it. There are so many shortages out there that that are here now that are going to be going forward. If you have to, as long as you have a college degree, and that's a big thing, you have to have that college degree. If you have that... I agree. I absolutely agree. Uh, no. Um, if you have that college degree, it makes it uh, that much easier because that's what the one of the criteria that the uh, majors look at, at least currently. It could be uh, for the future. Um, could change. I mean, they may not look, look at that so much. But uh, I know of my company, uh, Jeff can test this. He probably saw it. But they've come out with a new uh, initiative to recruit the next generation. And I would highly recommend visiting that website. I'm not going to mention it on air. However, there are, uh, you know, looking for guys just like yourself um, that will go ahead and uh, um, basically make homegrown pilots. And most of the regionals and or uh, majors are now starting to do ab initio programs. So I would take the initiative to look at all that because, you know, 20 years ago when I was working for ACME, if I had the opportunity that they presented uh, just this past week, I would be jumping out of my boots for joy because um, there's uh, there's definitely and clearly a, a presence of, of a shortage. And uh, I don't, it doesn't say what your age is, but if you're anything less than about 50, I would certainly go for it. I was just going to hasten to add that you really didn't clearly tell us. You kind of gave us an idea of about where your age was. But we're, we're taking an educated guess. Yes. The other thing you didn't mention is, are you a married man? I mean, do you have a partner in life? Do you have children? Do you have a family that you're supporting? And if you do, I'm not saying you shouldn't go for it. I'm just saying that you need to make sure that your partner is aware of the sacrifices you're going to have to make to get to the point where you can be um, successful and, uh, and on board. Yeah, yeah. exactly Definitely on board. If they're not, then don't take this on for yourself because you'll just make yourself miserable and ruin everything that you've built up. And we, and we know somebody that's at Acme that has their own airplane and would love to be a pilot, but has a lot of responsibility at home and makes really good money now. So he's not going to, uh, even though I've tried to encourage him, I'm sure Jeff has tried to encourage him to go ahead and, and, and make the transition because, you know, 10, 15 years from now, you might have those regrets. Because, well, there's, I mean, but there's a time and a place for everything. And, and that's where that's an individual process. And that's why there's no right answer here. But yeah. only you can make that decision. And, you know, like I said, I think just do it prudently, figure out what the budget is. Like Jeff said, make sure your family's on board if that's a, a consideration. And, in the end, you got to do what makes you happy. You really do. And what makes sense. And what makes sense. And my last two cents on it, John, go for it. Okay, but that's not the official yeah, That's not the official <laughs> recommendation. APG, that is not the official <laughs> that is, APG recommendation. That's Dana's. 
that's just that's just me speaking from my heart that if i had not made that choice then i wouldn't be sitting here with these guys and that's inspirational to yeah, a lot of people it, so that's that's yeah, great it, it, it's it's truly the other day it really hit me when 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 uh i was called captain i mean it really really hit me that i was the guy in charge that i've spent so many 16 years of flying and many years prior to that as a uh, as a wannabe that everybody referred to me as captain i was looking around who are they talking to oh yeah that's me that was that was really neat so well thank you captain as all my friends, all my biker friends actually came over to congratulate me. I just, it was, oh, just so cool. I was really taken back by everybody that uh, hadn't seen in a while. Everybody that was peripheral, not even my close friends, like acquaintances came up to me on a particular day and just kept on saying, we're so proud of you. So that, that, you know, those are the types of things, Sean, you just can't replace. Now I'm going to make a quick apology for all the noise, not our usual show venue, um, but uh, we've had a lot of visitors today, and of course the dogs are very excited with lots of strangers in the house. So, ah, so. that's okay. Nobody cares. <laughs> I'd be, I would that's be cool. extremely excited. It was strange too. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, quickly try to nail at, or knock out at least one or two more, if that's all right. With oh, you bet. Good. Yeah. All right. Somehow I've powered through that moment of tiredness that I oh, had you're on about the, uh, half an hour. Oh yeah. yeah. Now I'm on the. On you're the looking second. a little pale now, though. No, you're fine. Really? I give uh, him. Okay. I give him a massage. She'll fall asleep. Uh, all right. <laughs> Let's go on. Uh, Tim, I'm a long time listener in Southern California and enjoy enjoy the show each week. I just saw this article in one of the airline blogs I follow, and it caught me by surprise. I know the MD88s are slowly being phased out, but had no idea the MD90s might be exiting soon too. I know you're asked about the retirements often, but this is a new twist, and I'd like to hear your perspective on the discrete removals. Have you noticed any impact of this change in your operations at Acme Airlines? Uh, also looking forward to the elusive meetup or that elusive meetup in SoCal. Cheers, Tim. Now, uh, we're gonna, you're going to probably get two different perspectives based on I uh, take a break now. the See fact uh, that I'm a little bit more senior on the airplane than Dana is. I have not really seen the impact of that at this point yet. Maybe I will. Do you notice that you're flying fewer of the MD-90s? No, that's the normal mix I've always flown. I have heard that. And again, we don't have definitive information on this, just information from some of our sources within the company about what's going on. And apparently the, the, uh, what I heard, Dana, is that uh, a lot of the engines both on both fleets, 88 and 90, are, are being over-temped uh, in these hot summer months. And that is a problem because now we can find MRO you know, folks to overhaul Pratt & Whitney JT8D 219s or whatever the uh, model. I think it's a 219 that we find. It's find. a Dash 219. Dash, right. Excuse me. Dash 219. Um, but, uh, the, uh, IAE 2528s that were flying, uh, the D series D2, I believe on the MD nineties is it's a different story. And apparently the difference between the 2528s that are on a lot of the Airbuses, the a model, a two is different enough that, uh, these manu these, uh, maintenance 
overhaulers, whatever, uh, can't do the ones that are affixed to the 90. And, and again, it's really hard for me to believe this, but they say that there's like only one place in the world right now that in New Zealand that is doing these overhauls and they're, they're backlogged and it costs a lot of money. And apparently we have several of these 90s, not completely out of service. They're just kind of in uh, short term, hopefully, uh, they're donors. They're donors. Or they're using, they're parting them out for uh, other uh, other 90s. So I think we started with about 66 of the 90s, somewhere in that range, mid-60s. And now we're down to 53, I believe, that are still active. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of caught them off guard a little bit, the, uh, the engine issues. And, in fact, uh, recently um, an operational note for us is that uh, what we used to be carrying or tankering fuel a lot with uh, both fleets uh, to because they're uh, the the difference in the cost of fuel um, sometimes makes it more economical for us to tanker or carry a lot of extra fuel so that when we get to the destination and then we get refueled to come back we don't have to add as much fuel on at that station it maybe it's a much higher price so we were saving money by doing that even though carrying fuel does cost money but the price of the fuel offs more than offset that um, the cost of carrying fuel and the the downside to that or the side effect of carrying extra fuel means that the airplanes are heavier higher gross weights it's hot and now they're starting to see some over temp situations where they're kind of you know messing up the engines a little bit and wearing them out a little bit more than they they should and they thought eh, we're not going to do that tankering so much anymore now dana by the look on his face i have to and uh, assume that that is something that he disagrees with, but that's what I heard. And actually it was an official company um, uh, message. So let's, what do you have to say about that? Do you remember when they changed the weight data records recently? Uh, yeah. And they only put. Yeah. Yeah. One. One or, t- one or two. Uh, one uh, reduced. One reduced. That's, that's actually the problem. Oh. That, that's. That's what's driving the problem. It's, we are, as soon as that came out, we started over-temping airplanes. Oh, okay. So, well, um, I, 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 not heard I that, agree but. with you in the fact that we are we were carrying more fuel and, we're, you know, the aircraft was heavier, so it required more thrust to get the aircraft off the ground. Um, but the, the actual, and this is coming from... Uh, the maintenance side of the house. I got my, as you've heard me say before, my buddy is the uh, maintenance manager of the T-tail program at the uh, the technical operations center. They're the ones that do all the overhauls of the aircraft for the T-tails, and that includes seven one seven, the eighty eight, and the ninety. Um, and that's about corresponds to when we started blowing up engines. So that does correspond to it. But again, I'm just relying upon the official. Yeah messaging memos that we get and that sort of thing but believe, anyway i don't believe everything i see and read yeah okay well so but uh, uh did you want to say some more on that uh, no i think you should say more you think okay all right so i'm sitting here on uh pins and needles today actually um and i've promised jeff that i would not talk in a negative context at all um but the pins and needles i'm sitting on is because they have a head count reduction uh, going on that is coming out at some point today and uh, although i'm senior enough probably to avoid it uh, it's going to put me in the exact position that i didn't want to be in and that's really junior on the aircraft uh, right uh, within 90 percent or better from the bottom uh, you know 10 percent from the bottom um, so i'm waiting pins and needles today 
So yes, it is affecting uh, us because that was unexpected and they have decided to go ahead and reduce headcount significantly um, throughout the company on the airplane. So I'm hoping it will still be Captain Dana. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, anyways, the uh, the good news is, is that uh, we are getting other aircraft to replace them. The uh, not so good news is that, in fact, it's my baby. I love that aircraft. And very much like Jeff, I've been on the aircraft for a long time, and I enjoy flying it. And uh, I don't want to lose the opportunity to continue to be captain on it. So uh, I'm going to keep on a positive light and uh, hope for the best. And uh, that's all we're going to stay on that. All right. Let's do one more. And this is audio feedback from Bill. Hello, APG crew. This is Bill Heron, normally in Omaha, but this week. Uh, vacationing with family and friends in the sunny climes of Northern California. Uh, This morning I was walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, something I've always wanted to do but never done. And while I was walking across, I noticed a a helicopter. I didn't recognize any markings on the side. I'm assuming it was one of those uh, tourism helicopters. And this helicopter uh, came by and passed under the Golden Gate Bridge. He then did a climbing left turn, came back over the Golden Gate Bridge on his way back. Now, I, I remember anecdotally some Navy pilots talking about getting in trouble because they flew planes under the Golden Gate Bridge, but I'm not really clear on what the rules are on that. It's the first time I've seen it happen. Is it legal for them to be flying those helicopters under the spans of the Golden Gate Bridge? So um, I, I, I don't know if you guys will be able to answer that, or maybe you'll know somebody else. I know somebody down in San Diego who might be a better reference for that. But we'll start with you guys and see what you come up with. Love the podcast. I've even convinced my wife to start listening to it to the point that she knows everybody's names, which is kind of scary. So keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hello, Bill's wife. Hi. Hi, Bill's wife. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So, um, hmm, I wish we knew somebody that might know something that lives in the Northern California area might know something about some, some insider information, insider yeah. information about the, does a lot of we, flying around there anyone? perhaps. I don't know if anybody up there listens. I don't think so. No, nobody. They're, they're smart there. They, do you know anybody, Nick? Uh, might do. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how about Fred? Fred. Oh, Fred. Fred. I haven't heard from Fred in a while. Hey, Fred, how you doing, buddy? My friend, Fred. So Our my, friend Fred. <laughs> oh, okay. Our friend Fred. Uh, my friend Fred. Also, is a Fred, where are you? We were half expecting you to show up here. Just no kidding. I yeah, figured you'd you pop, pop off the. Airport. You haven't appeared yet. We're a bit worried. <laughs> we're expecting to see you at some point here. Yeah, check check behind you. <laughs> okay, so I got in touch with Fred and asked him because uh, he's incredibly interested uh, in this sort of thing. Flies around that exact area frequently. Um, And uh, he came back and said, well, it's a subject of much debate. Uh, The deck of the bridge is less than 250 feet, he thinks. We might need to double check that. But uh, it does not meet, definitely does not meet the clearance requirement uh, for airplanes, aircraft, which is 500 feet. He said you could technically, he thinks, land a seaplane under the bridge. However, um, it can also be done with an aerobatic waiver, but the airspace would also have to be no-tamed for that. So basically what we're saying is, for normally the airspace to mean no-tamed, you're going to have to get the permission of the San Francisco Air Traffic Control Authorities. 
Um, however, uh, my feeling is that you'd also need uh, FAA authority as well, because uh, that's obviously a uh, a particular po- would be a particular point of interest of it uh, for them. And if you did it without their authority, uh, you would probably be uh, hammered big time. Um, and now Fred thinks you could do it in a whirly bird. I guess he means a helicopter, but you would have to argue with the say that again. Whirly bird or whirly helicopter. Bird. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but uh, you'd uh, you'd have to argue with the FSDO. Now you guys might have to help. The FISDO. FISDO. It's called that FISDO. Actually, doesn't help me any. It's just another <laughs> name for something I didn't understand in the first FISDO. place. FISDO. Flight service. Uh, acronyms are dangerous. Uh oh. Uh, uh, now I'm going to look up exactly. FISDO. It's FISDO. It's okay. the FISDO. It's it's where Flights, you go for flight service service. District office. I think. All right. Okay. It's got to be close to that. Flight standards district office. Flight standards. Okay. It sounded like a fast food joint. Um, uh, You'd have to check with the FISDO that it's safe at that time and probably lose that argument. Uh, It's been done, apparently, under a waiver. Uh, It's normal airspace to the ground or to the water there under the SFO uh, airspace Bravo. Um, NorCal uh, is normally in control. It's been done a few times with less than visible N numbers. So legend has it. So I guess that means uh, some people have uh, obscured the numbers on the aircraft and done it just for fun. But that, I guess, would be illegal. Um, So I think the uh, answer is uh, if you were a film company with a lot of money, you would probably be able to apply for a waiver that would allow you to do it. And if you were, I don't know, what's his name? What's, what's the matter with Dana? <laughs> we're not sure. <laughs> we're not sure. He's just lost it. I think he's like, it's it's uh, that he's, time of day. Oh, look, snot's, you know, it's the, snot's <laughs> dribbling out of his nose. It's, the, it's <laughs> the sleep deprivation, the little bit of alcohol. I think if you check your uh, liquor cabinet, you'll see yeah, the Yeah, that's probably, yeah. It's, 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 no, this it's, is only 4% alcohol. It's no way it can it's, Well, that's me. not the only thing you've had to drink. Yeah, yeah but the past four hours. that <laughs> bottle of uh, oak cask, no, sherry cask uh, whiskey that you Yeah, but consumed. this is not, I'm not even buzzed. Yeah. Sorry. So I think I'm if slapping. you were uh, Nathan Hunt uh, in one of the Mission Impossible uh, movies, they you would get permission. But it's going to take a lot of hoop uh, fly, climbing through. So uh, I think the, for the average tour operator with helicopters, probably not. I agree 100%. And, I mean, it is possible to get waivers or special permission for things like that. I mean, um, I don't know anything about buzzing around under bridges or anything, but certainly talking to um, like within the skydiving community to do demonstrations. Um, it's kind of the same process. You have to get permission and approval to be in those, those areas. And it goes through the same thing. You have to go to the FISDO and go to the local controlling authorities. And I, w- I think it would follow, you know, the uh, landmarks in this country are, are uh, prohibited by was uh, flight restrictions or how do I want to so national parks have flight restrictions you can't overfly a national park at less than 2,000 feet above ground level I believe yeah. um, I don't know that the national uh, that the uh, Golden Gate Bridge falls into that category because it's not a national park or- well after September 11th they institute a lot of things yeah. that you can fly I, I think you got to be around. real cautious with that I mean yeah. unless you have Dams. explicit specific 
permission. Yeah. I guess yeah. Homeland like Security here. would uh, be involved. They would in frown that on it. Well. Yeah. Yeah. There. I mean, there are non, no fly zones, and I would imagine that the Golden Gate would probably be one of them because it's uh, you know you just can't go flying down and fly underneath Tappan Zee Bridge as well either. Tappan Zee Bridge is the major bridge in New it's York. New York. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Hudson River. Cool. All right. Well, can I Bill? answer one? Pardon me? Tim, number 15. I just answer, it's real quick. Okay, sure. Tim, that's just the bourbon falling off the back of my boat. Okay, well, you'll have to do a little bit more to kind of set this up for people that are oh, okay. so, just yeah. listening to the show, have no idea what you're talking about. Tim sent in a, some feedback, and that was that uh, breaking the deep stat, state now using boats to distribute their chemtrails. So there's a picture of a boat with a uh, wake behind it that is now supposedly the chemtrail. That's my boat. Not really. Uh, behind it is the uh, bourbon trail off the back of my boat because I'm just using that to get all the fish drunk so they will go ahead and bite the fish hook. Well, all the all the aviation uh, enthusiasts listening to this show will know what the contrails look like behind an aircraft. Contrails, chemtrails, you decide. But, you know, if you if you picture a boat on particularly still water, you get kind of the same effect behind the boat. Um, yeah, it's a wake. Yeah. And yeah. I, I would say that uh, if you're dumping bourbon out the back of your boat, that is, that's a chemical that you're dispersing. So that <laughs> exactly is exactly correct. That's What's exactly happening to point. those poor yep. fish in that lake or that Oh, that dying water? happy. Yeah, it's true. Yes. <laughs> like, ah, bourbon. <laughs> yeah. Speaking right. of dying happy. Glub, glub, glub. <laughs> our our uh, show is dying, dying right now. So <laughs> yes. I think that that's, uh, my, that's my boo boo. I miss. Okay. Oh, oh special message to uh, Julie, Julie at home. Hi, yeah. Julie. She's watching us. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Okay. Well, with that, uh, we're going to end today's show. Thanks everybody for sending in the feedback. If you want to uh, join in with that, you can send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. You can go to the website, airlinepilotguy.com, where you'll find a bunch of information about the crew and the community and merchandise and the coffee fund and much, much more, including how you can send us feedback. And uh, we have a couple of apps for both the uh, iOS, that's it. Or the vowels you were looking for. Yes, iOS platform and Android platform. Uh, Google Play Store for the Android and of course the uh, App Store, Apple App Store for the iOS and uh, it's free and um, no ads so uh, check it out and we're on social media and Dr. Steph will tell us about that Point your browser over to Twitter twitter.com, we are at APG Crew, you can find all of us there and our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, all kinds of news and information from the community, all kinds of interesting articles, things that people think that you might be interested in as well. So we would love to see you there. And we're also on Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, 
and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo one And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. We didn't know he was hiding under the table this whole time. Yeah. But apparently that's where he was. Yeah, yeah was uh, along with the dogs. Mom, we didn't bring up his head doing most Hillel's of the barking. <laughs> it's right around the corner. That's He's why the so dogs quiet. are barking. Hillel just came in. He was right around the corner. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Thank you, Hillel. We'll talk soon. And uh, anything else before we... Uh... All right. It's time. <laughs> Way past time. Uh, so thanks for uh, listening, watching, and uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye from Blighty. Adios, amigos. Cheers! <laughs> Every time. Perfect. <laughs> Good day.